I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Merry Rose. Once again, this is not Alex, this is Matt, and I am in control of our evening down the pub. After the outbreak of the love bug on our last visit to the pub, you'll be pleased to know it's been fumigated and we are back in normal standing once again. So we've got a good crowd in with us tonight. And like all good pubs, we've got a bit of underage drinking going on this evening. We've got a very special guest and we're going to start off with hellos to her. So good evening, Sophie Sams. How are you? Fine. Good. You gonna, are you going to beat your dad tonight? Super. Well, we're going to get to you a little bit early on so that you can then let us know what you think of everybody else before beforehand. But Chris, how are you? You ready? Have you got a good one to beat Sophie? Are you going to throw one in to be a good dad? Um, well, I, I started off quite well. I did my usual. I re- did all the reading, thought, yeah, this is brilliant. But then I've got to the end and realized it's got genocide and uh, ethnic cleansing in it by, by, by the hero. So I'm not entirely certain. So I think she might win. <laughs> that doesn't sound heroic, but we'll come, we'll come back to that later. So you're very welcome, Sophie. We will try to behave ourselves and use words of more than four letters, which might be difficult for, well, Marcus. Um <laughs> Lunch, I think it's just what I'm going to do now. Anyways, we, we've also got new additions in the shape of Beth's glasses, which, of course, mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing for a radio show that we're going to talk about Beth's glasses. But do we all look a bit strange now, more so than usual? You're all a bit clearer, um, which is which is nice. And I don't have any headaches looking at any of you anymore. Um, although if anyone wants photographic, <laughs> if anyone wants photographic proof, they are on Twitter, but there's always the, the, the trade off of whether do you post actual pictures of yourself on um, social media? You know, I thought, Oh, well, my people can see my glasses, how nice they look. And then you get a flurry of um, DMS, which are not suitable for our little ears. <laughs> And, and unfortunately, you can see those DMs a lot clearer than you could. Yeah, have yeah, they're much easier to yeah. see now. And Zach apologises for nearly all of them that he sent. I'm going to say Zach, Zach's are nothing compared to yours, Princess. <laughs> I was going to say some of the ones that have been sent to you by DM, you probably need the glasses to see them. Mm-hmm. It's a magnifying glass. It's usually all the stock image, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's, let's let's move swiftly on because that that's that's a 
that's a hole we don't want to go down. That makes it even worse, doesn't it? Right. Um, kids, <laughs> you're, you're a busy man this evening. I'm just trying to keep myself occupied. <laughs> <laughs> so for, the, for, for, for those of you not watching, Kit is in the corner of my screen and he's, he's looking very proud of himself now that his, his paperwork's come through for his actual doctorate, which we won't congratulate him about because we've done it numerous times already. But there's also nose and lips of Amelia poking out of the, the corner. And every once in a while, he stabs her with a needle. Um, so Yeah, she's almost finished. I'm just working on her eyebrows now. I've done the eyelids. I've done the eyelashes. I've done the hair. It's just the eyebrows. And then I'm finished. I don't know what to say to that. So thanks for that. <laughs> it's, it, it is a terrifying sight, ladies and gentlemen. Um, moving on to another terrible sight. Marcus, how are you? You've got a new job. Yeah, when does this go out? Um, yes, I do. Yeah, I have, I have had my medicine. Uh, I'm going to the rather wonderful West Horsey Place, a uh, beautiful country house that some of you might know from the filming of BBC's Ghosts or Enola Holmes or um, I think in The Crown and quite a few others. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not quite leaving uh, Wellington and Napoleonic behind, of course, with all my research, but uh, yeah, history moves on. It's got amazing history from medieval through Tudor, Stuart, uh, up to World War II. Canadians are based there, which the jury's out on, obviously. 99% um, okay, Matt Bone. And, um, and then the Duchess of Roxburgh up until 2014. So it's got an amazing history. It's a beautiful house out in the countryside, and I'm very, very excited. We can't wait to be brought out to visit and yes. re record live from somewhere fancy. Why not? Yes, there you go. That just came into my head as a half-formed idea. We're going to run with it. Um, speaking of half-formed ideas, James, how are you? Uh, not too bad today. Almost back to normal. Well, as normal as, as Brummy can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, 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 we wouldn't say it. We'd just think it. <laughs> uh, that's why I said it. <laughs> Yes, there we go. Super. Well, welcome. Let's let's move move swiftly on, shall we? Um, all, all my people have moved around, so my 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 method has gone out the window. Zach, you're in the middle. Is that a good thing? I, I don't I don't know. But you're between Lockie and Charlotte now, so that that's that's that's, that's a nice place, place to, be. to be. Yeah. And if you sort of dribble, you'll land on Marcus, so that'll be all right. Well, that's that's nothing unusual there. So. Um... We're probably not succeeding in keeping this PG, are we? Let's be honest. <laughs> I don't know I was just, yeah, that's just, that's just normal for a little romance. It's fine. I'm just, I'm just loving. It. You can see everybody's trying really, really hard to choose their sentences very carefully. Um, and to test that theory, Holmes, how you been? I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm fine. I, I think we should perhaps have a rule here. You know, you take your kids to football. <laughs> when they're really little and you have that rule that whatever you hear here is not to be repeated and you definitely don't tell mummy i think that probably needs to be invoked quite quickly <laughs> chris shaking his head so vigorously <laughs> the first time i took ellie to fulham at, at the end of the game as we were walking back to the pub she turned to me and went i've learned some new words today daddy and i'm like you're never gonna say them either <laughs> the, the first time I took my son, and he'll, he'll love me for this, he basically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the taboo, he basically needed a shit, right? 
But he was so <laughs> excited by the whole, the lights and everything. He didn't want to go. And he started to do that thing where you fart through the shit so it gets smellier <laughs> and smellier and smellier until there's this row behind us. It was at Chelsea, it was midweek, and this row behind us. Somebody went, fucking hell, he's dropped one. <laughs> and I turned around and I, and I went, oh, it, it's my son. He really needs a sort of but he's waiting till half time, which then it looked like it was me pretending using my son as an excuse and being massively defensive. <laughs> Terrible man. When my younger daughter was about Sophie's age, I took her to see Chelsea play away at Watford. We were near the corner flag, watching the game, and Watford had an attack. They crossed the ball. The ball went nowhere near the goal. The goalkeeper caught it, and the linesman signalled that the ball had gone over the line. These were the days before goal line technology. And the referee awarded a goal. The crowd around us stood up and to a man started chanting, the lino is a, then they expressed a very naughty word that I won't give, um, won't use in front of Sophie. At that point, Camilla looked up at me and said, Daddy, they shouldn't be saying that, should they? I said, no, he's an assistant referee, not a lino. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Clive. How how are you? You've got you've got internet issues this evening, so we're, we're we may we may not have much of you if this continues. It, it's been all bloody week. It has been so frustrating. I seem to have spent the whole week on Zoom calls, and the whole week on Zoom calls crashing around me. So I'm just hoping that this can go smoothly and without problems. BT have promised they're going to resolve it tomorrow, but whether BT is going to live up to their promises is another matter. Hearing stories about other broadband providers makes me not keen to switch to any of those. I think it's you're once caught between the devil and the deep blue sea on this one. This is turning into an episode of Watchdog. <laughs> <laughs> With random swearing thrown in. Yeah. Which, to be fair, is what Watchdog was missing at the height of its powers, wasn't it? It's what some to come on and really watch, tell so. you what they think about the product. Lockie. Hello. How how are you? Have you recovered? I live with a wonderful Scotswoman who has not let me hear the end of that certain result that the other week. How how are you doing post two England yeah. games? I mean, I'm doing my best to put it behind me. Um, been cracking on with PhD work, and um, I had a, a fortune cookie uh, the other day, which says the prospect of a thrilling time is ahead. Um, I don't know if they're talking about this podcast. It might be a bit further ahead. Than that possibly, but uh, but yeah, there's reasons to be cheerful. It could, it could be Clive getting his broadband fixed. Vicarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty thrilling. <laughs> and last, but by no means least, our eventual winner, because she always wins. <laughs> Charlie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I've been baking today, so the house smells of brownies, which is always a good place to be. I wish you were here. I just feed you all. Mm. Yes, that would be lovely. I quite fancy a brownie now. I miss so, people. My, my selection tonight is crisps and mixed nuts and red wine. There will be whiskey later. So. It's not the first time you've had nuts on your face. There's, 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 a, story, there's a story there, but we shall save that for a future podcast. Matt, for Sophie's benefit, you're going to have to make up a story about doing work experience at a zoo and quite quickly. Yeah, yes. I used to work at a food packing factory and I slipped there was lots of monkeys about um this isn't going well is it let's 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 raise the tone and get going so despite my faux pas earlier this evening we are doing history's unlikeliest hero and i 
thank Holmes for reminding me that I got that completely wrong last time. Um, so we should have some interesting people. I, I know a few that are going to happen tonight, so it's it's going to be really good. And unfortunately, Lockie had a great one, which I might actually get him to throw in anyways, but because I was a fan, I would have voted for yours, Lockie. Not that I get a vote. I just talk at you all for a while to make this last a little bit longer than the last one I did, which got complaints for being too short. Um, Who was complaining? No, no one was too short. I think how long we actually are. I think we got sort of higher ratings on Apple Podcasts for it being under three hours. So it was um, (laughs) was good. Okay, right. So, Miss Sophie, would you like to start us off? is a dog now known as Saviour. In Kenya, early May 2005, a dog found an abandoned baby girl in a dumpster. She took her to where she was keeping her puppies and nursed the baby like her own. Until a local heard the baby crying and took her to the hospital, who named her Angel. Angel was stable by the 11th of May. Yeah. Well, that was brilliant. I think that round of applause there, everybody. That was superb. And I think, I think you're we can all go home now. That's it. Yeah. I, I think you've just given Charlie a run for her money there. Yeah. <laughs> Not feeling very safe anymore. <laughs> Nor am I. <laughs> you want? Yes. You, you've just made everybody very upset because they've realized they should have gone for puppy saving people. But um, the one person who doesn't look impressed, Holmes. I quite like that. I mean, I haven't got many questions. I didn't, Sophie, I didn't quite catch the dog's name. What was it? Saviour. And then did Saviour get any sort of rewards for doing this great thing? She got adopted. She got adopted. Not adopted wouldn't be much of a reward. Did she get adopted? (laughs) Adopted. (laughs) Adopted. (laughs) <laughs> tonight on grammar. <laughs> I, I couldn't hear. That was all. I mean, maybe, maybe Matt. What we should do is do what Sports Personality of the Year do, and we have the main award. But we can have like the BBC. They have a young Sports Personality of the Year, don't they? As well, so we could. You're just trying to get out of making a hard decision. Well, so already, Zach can win. <laughs> James. <laughs> That's really harsh. But Zach first, Sophie second, then we got James third. That's just me. That's just the natural order of life, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't listening then. I, I caught Sophie's story and was moved by it so much. I wasn't listening to Zach. So sorry, Zach. Well, I mean, I, you don't I listen anyway, say, James. What's new? I think we have to say that Sophie delivered that really well, better than some have done on here in the past, looking at no one, James in particular. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was concise, moving and to the point, which, you know, there you go. Lockie, what did you think? I really liked it. Um, do we know what kind of dog Saviour was? No. <laughs> a hairy one. Let's go with that. A hairy dog. Gotcha. No, I liked it. Very nice. Thank you, Sophie. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for starting us off and putting the bar very, very high for the rest of the evening. Um, thank you, Sophie. Right. Um, let's go to Clive before his internet dies again. Because we're going to okay. dogs. And if there's more than one voice, we're going to start deducting points, I think. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well. 
this is a little bit of a change from stories about dogs, but let me try it. Dorset is not now and probably never has been a part of England that one would associate with radicalism and the Labour movement. There are eight MPs representing the county, all of them Tory. 23% of the population are pensioners. It's a county of rural beauty, sandy beaches and the Jurassic Coast. Outside of the discontented, unwashed rabble attending Bournemouth University and the naked sun worshippers of Studland. It is hard to imagine anyone getting fired up over anything other than the plight of rural buses and which 1970s television star is coming to the big centre. And it was probably ever thus. In 1833, a year after the Reform Act, agricultural workers were still disenfranchised. Poverty in the largely rural county was rife. In 1815, 13% of the population of Dorset were receiving poor relief, and that figure grew with the peace that followed the Napoleonic Wars. Peace, a labour glut, economic downturn, and increased mechanisation made life difficult for agricultural workers. Agricultural wages declined, falling below 10 shillings a week, down to seven and then six. Even those in work could barely survive. The living wage for a family was then around 13 and six. That's 13 shillings and six pence, or 67 and a half new pence, to those of you who have never learned pre-decimal money. Men worked when they could. They worked hard. Landowners were often absent in London or behind the high walls of their estates. For them, this was an opportunity to increase their wealth, and they seized it. And they had right, as they saw it, on their side. Parliament, even with the Reform Act, was comprised of people like them, as were the courts and the magistrates and the church. The poor, on the other hand, had no voice and no recourse to justice. In 1830, agricultural labourers took, took the law into their own hands, and the swing rebellion broke out across the countryside with gangs of labourers smashing machines and terrorising landowners. The army was sent in, hundreds of malcontents tried and sentenced to death, which were rapidly, in most cases, commuted to transportation to the effect of slavery of Australia. You want to work for a living wage? Well, then you can work for nothing in some far-off hellhole while you'll find deadly spiders in your boots in the morning. The Spring Rebellion and its brutal suppression did nothing to further the loss of the agricultural worker. Wages continued to decline. Founded less than a century earlier, Methodism thrived in this environment and gave a voice and a focus to the oppressed. It gave them a sense of their worth based not on hierarchy or status, but on the equal value of all people before God. Tollpuddle in Dorset is today a small village with a population of 420 people. It was certainly no larger 190 years ago. In the centre of the village is the sycamore tree, which is cared for by the National Trust. And it was beneath this tree that a group of agricultural workers, at least five of the Methodists, came together and resolved not to tolerate the exploitation that they were subject to any longer, and to find a way to better their lot without recourse to the violence of swing. They formed a friendly society, the Friendly Society of Agricultural Workers, as they were entitled to do under the Combinations Act 1825, and pledged to each other that none would work for less than 10 shillings a week. They met regularly either under the tree or in Thomas Stanfield's house, and they invited new members to join them. New members had to swear an oath of solidarity and secrecy. The local squire, James Frampton, was a tad pissed off when he found out that his labour pool were demanding an almost living wage and worried that another swing rebellion, or worse, 
an English equivalent of the French Revolution, was fermenting. He started to spy on the activities of the men. He also sought guidance from the Home Secretary and later Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. You know, the kindly one played by the ever so gorgeous, according to Mrs O, Rufus Sewell in the recent television series, An Utter Abomination, Victoria. Melbourne's advice was to point Frampton to the Unlawful Oaths Act, 1797, a statute enacted following the Spithead and Nor naval mutinies, and only revoked in 1981. While unions and friendly societies were lawful, it was argued that the taking of oaths was not. The argument was at best flimsy. Six men were arrested. A grand jury was formed. Its foreman was Lord Ponson, uh, sorry, William Ponsonby, MP, brother-in-law to Lord Melbourne, and the jury included James Frampton himself, his son Henry, his stepbrother Charles Wollaston, and several of the magistrates who had signed the arrest warrant. The judge, Sir John Williams, pronounced at the outset of the case, I'm sorry about this, Matt, the object of all legal punishment is not altogether with a view of operating on the offenders themselves, it is also for the sake of offering an example and a warning. Two of Frampton's spies gave evidence. One, Edward Legg, testified that he had attended a meeting along with the other, Locke. I went with the last witness. They told us something about striking, or that they meant to strike, and that we might do the same if we liked. There was nothing said about the time when we should strike. There was something said about our masters having notice of it, but I don't remember anything about it. We kissed a book when we were blinded. When we were on our knees, we repeated something that was said by somebody, but who said it, I don't know. I believe it was like the voice of James Lovelace. I think the words we repeated were something about being plunged into eternity and about keeping secret what was done by the society. I don't know what the book it was that I kissed, when I was unblinded, I saw a book on the table that resembled a testament. They showed us the picture of death, and one of them said, Remember your end. There was no fair trial. The judge summed up to the jury. If you are satisfied that an oath or obligation tantamount to an oath was administered to either of the witnesses, leg or lock, by means of the prisoners, you ought to find them guilty. The prisoners are indicted under the Act the preamble of which refers to seditious and mutinous societies. But I am of the opinion that enacting part of the statute extends to all societies of an illegal nature. And the second section of the Act enacts that all societies shall be illegal, the members whereof shall, according to the rules thereof, be required to take an oath or engagement not required by law. If you are satisfied from the evidence respecting the blinding, the kneeling and the other facts proved, that an oath or obligation was imposed on the witnesses, or either of them, you ought to find the prisoners guilty. And if you come to that conclusion, I wish you to state whether you're of the opinion that the prisoners were united in the society. The six men, George Lovelace, a Methodist lay preacher, James Lovelace, his brother, Tom Stanfield, John Stanfield, James Bryan, and James Hammett were sentenced to seven years penal servitude in Australia, the maximum sentence available under the Act. Imprisoned, George Lovelace penned the lines of the Union hymn. God is our guide from field, from wave, from plough, from anvil, and from loom. We come our country's rights to save and speak a tyrant's faction's doom. We raise the watchword, liberty. We will, we will, we will be free.
the six men were put on a ship and sailed off to Australia. In the meantime, news of the trial and sentence spread and outrage of the convictions and harshness of the punishment was expressed. 800,000 signatures were obtained to a petition asking for clemency. That's a huge number when you consider the population of England at the time, just over 60, 16 million in the 1831 census, and so 5% of the population. 100,000 people assembled in protest in Copenhagen fields near King's Cross. The cavalry were called up. MPs of a more enlightened persuasion, such as the great Irish MP Daniel O'Connell, took up the cause. Eventually, the government saw that the only way forward was to back down, and a conditional pardon was offered to the men. They refused the conditions, and eventually the government gave them a full pardon in 1836, three years after their trial, and after two years in Australia. Tall puggle martyrs and public opinion created by their treatment allowed trade unions to become established and flourished in industrialized Britain. The legacy of the martyrs' lives today, not just in Britain, is not just in Britain, but beyond. The importance of the development of unions and the labor movement that it engendered has played a considerable role in the history of this country over the last 180 years. Between 1837 and 1839, the martyrs were able to return to England. Supporters brought them leases on farms in Essex, but the local squirearchy did not take to these radical interlopers. And soon five of the six martyrs took ship once more and moved to Canada. The sixth martyr and the unlikely hero of my piece was James Hammett. He did not go to Canada. He returned to Tolpuddle. Alone among the six, he was not a Methodist. He had a criminal record dating from 1829 for stealing iron. It's even possible that he never attended any of the meetings nor took any oath. He may have accepted his arrest and punishment to protect his brother, John, who did attend. Unlike the other five, he never wrote of his experiences, but returned to obscurity and told Puddle, coming only momentarily into the light in 1875, when the Agricultural Workers' Union presented him with an engraved watch. Before he died in 1891, he moved to the poorhouse in Dorchester so as not to be a burden on his family. He has no Wikipedia entry. The Tollpuddle martyrs were unlikely heroes, but James Hammett was the unlikeliest of them all. Well, I have to admit, I'd never heard of the Tollpuddle martyrs until you started talking about them, and then I Googled them. What a fascinating story. And I didn't, I didn't copy that entirely from Google. I had other sources. Oh, sorry, from Wikipedia, I had other sources as well. Yes, I, I noted the deviations down. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel sorry for them because not only do you get exiled to Tasmania, you then get shipped out to London, Ontario, and I'm not exactly sure which is, which is worse. Um, Lockie, what do you yeah. make of it? So I like it, and I, and I'm, I'm reasonably familiar with their um, stories, and I think as as kind of inspiration, they're quite slow burners, aren't they? Um, because we don't get sort of you know it, Britain doesn't go through the kind of revolutions that continental Europe does in the 1840s, for example, and it's not until we get a couple more reform acts in the 1860s that things start moving. So I'd I'd, I'd maybe qualify or maybe curb my enthusiasm a little for the Toll Puddle Martyrs, who I do like very much and do appreciate very much, and saying that their impact was less than immediate. Um, but it's a good one. Um, I, I did like the um, casual simplification of life in Australia to spiders and stuff. 
um, which is probably accurate from what I understand. Um, I think you, you possibly uh, went through a little bit more early 19th century legal stuff than was strictly necessary, but hey, you know, you, you do you. Um, yeah, I liked it. Good. Thank you. I, I basically, since we've started doing this and Clive's been doing his voices, every time I hear about a court case, everybody sounds like Clive. Um, it's, it makes makes reading the papers a whole lot better. Holmes, what did you make of that? I, I thought that's quite a good one, actually. It's not one that I would have thought about, but um, as soon as he started talking about Bournemouth and Dorset, I suddenly thought, oh, this is where he's going. This is this is quite a good one. I noticed early on he talked about the, uh, the legions of sun worshippers at Studland and wondered whether you were referring to the nudist beach around there, Clive. There was an allusion to that as well. It's one of the only kind of interesting things about Dorset, isn't it? Everything else in Dorset is aged over 87. Well, and, also, and I think, as you're suggesting, this is possibly the, the only left-wing thing ever to come out of Dorset. Anyway, you know, pretty much. Um, and also, the accents were good. I mean, people go on about Ray Fiennes' accent in the dig, but there was one passage in there where you did about 14 accents. I don't know whether that was deliberate or not, but... <laughs> I was, try I was trying to get a harness my inner Walter Gabriel from the archers, but it didn't quite come off. Can I just say, I now feel like uh, Dorman did after he heard the Misty Mountain or whatever uh, trailer. Just deeply, deeply offended at my people and my culture. So, yeah. And then, and, and then just one thing, Clark, because you mentioned that unions existed at that time. Anyway. They were allowed, they were allowed to... After 1825, unions were allowed to exist as friendly societies or whatever. But the way in which this case was handled by the judge would have actually precluded any unions probably from existing. I was going to say, what what could that what could unions do at the time? They, people could come together in unions. They could um, agree to collective bargaining or whatever, you know, helping each other. What they couldn't do was to bind the obligation to help each other in an oath. It was the it was a secret oath as well, I believe, which went against yeah. some of the um, magistrates' laws at the time. I, I, I know the story quite well from being Dorset because uh, we used to have a statue to three of them outside of our school, which, as a prep school, was uh, quite ironic. <laughs> and no doubt part of the heritage that made you Tory boy today. Independent, happily so. <laughs> Not sure how that makes me feel. <laughs> no, oh well, that, that was a good one, Clive. Nothing, nothing further from me. Thank you. Right, let's let's just check in with the young Sams. What do you, what do you think about trade unions in the Tolpod of Martyrs? <laughs> I think most of it went over my head. That is a good, honest <laughs> response. Mine too, Sophie. <laughs> See, but most of us here were sitting here quickly Googling trade union relations in the 19th century so we could have something sensible to say. And clearly, Lockie did the best search. Right. Um, <laughs> let's. Thank you very much. We'll check in with you guys later to make sure keep your dad awake because this is usually past his bedtime. Um, let's go to Zach because he's going to depress us all for a, a bit. And he's he asked to depress everybody early. So off you go, mate. Yeah, so I decided to just kind of ruin everyone's evening again. Um, tonight, I want to bring you the story of a 20th century industrialist with questionable political taste, 
who gave it all up in one of history's great stories of redemption. Born in Moravia, modern-day Czech Republic, in April 1908, this unlikely hero was born into a middle-class Catholic family living in the Sudetenland. He studied engineering and initially sought to follow in his father's footsteps, working in his dad's farming machinery business. In 1928, he married Emily Pelzel and had a variety of jobs, including opening a driving school, selling government property, being a Czechoslovak reservist, and working for German military foreign intelligence. In common with many of his German-speaking contemporaries in the Sudetenland in the interwar period, he joined Konrad Henlein's Sudeten German Party, which supported unification of the Sudetenland with Germany. And when the region was incorporated into Nazi Germany in 1938, he joined the Nazi Party. That year, Schindler, um, oh, bugger, I've revealed who he is already. That year, this guy um, had been arrested for espionage by the Czechs and sentenced to death, but was pardoned after the annexation. In September 1939, he moved to Krakow in Poland, where he made money on the black market. Thanks to liberal use of bribes and German contacts, he secured ownership of a formerly Jewish-owned enamelware factory and quickly built up a staff of 250 employees to operate it. Hedonistic and an avid gambler, this man spent his days either running his business, networking with high-ranking SS officials, or schmoozing with local Polish women. So far, I think we'd all agree that there's nothing here that makes this individual seem even slightly heroic, although actually given some of James's past performances, perhaps that's open to question. But all of that was to change in the 1940s for one very simple reason. This man's name was Oskar Schindler. Now immortalized in the harrowing but brilliant Spielberg epic Schindler's List with Liam Neeson playing the title role, Schindler's story is one of the most famous and most remarkable stories of resistance, subversion, gall and selfless heroism to come out of the Holocaust. I'll leave it for the academics to debate at what precise point Schindler had his epiphany. When the factory first opened, only seven of Schindler's employees were Jewish and he never expressed any overt opposition to the Nazi regime. What is clear is that by 1942, Schindler had expanded the factory, securing a lucrative contract as a producer of ammunition and used that privileged position with the Nazis to twist the system to his own ends. By late 42, around 800 were employed in Schindler's enamel, in Schindler's enamelware factory. Half of them were Jewish. As the SS began to try and transport his Jewish workers to Auschwitz, Schindler resisted, claiming that they were essential metal work and munition workers, and that moving them would harm production of the essential war materials that the Nazis were desperate for. When the Krakow ghetto was liquidated in March 1943, Schindler used his personal influence as a drinking partner of sadistic SS Commandant Amon Goethe to set up a special subcamp for his Jewish workers. Once achieved, he ensured that conditions for the Jews in the camp were far better than anything they would have experienced elsewhere in the Nazi Reich, augmenting their diet with food bought on the black market at Schindler's own expense. He even declared his own factory out of bounds to SS guards, giving them respite from the brutality that the SS were inflicting upon them. Schindler's actions were not without personal risk. He made extensive use of bribes to get what he wanted on behalf of his Jewish workers, and this, along with his efforts to protect his workforce, led to him being arrested three times on charges of corruption, irregularity, and Jewish sympathies. The SS never found the evidence that they needed to prosecute, though. 
In late 1944, Schindler's camp had to be evacuated in the face of the Red Army's advance. Schindler compiled his famous list of essential workers who he insisted that the authorities transfer to a new site in the Sudetenland, where they would continue to work on munitions. No one knows exactly how many people were on Schindler's lists, as there were several versions of them, but the number is generally said to have been around 1,200. Men, women, children, the elderly and the infirm, all were on the list, classed as essential workers in order to save them from the Nazis' extermination camps. Initially, those Jews were taken to the camps of Gross Rosen and Auschwitz before being transferred on. In the process, Schindler had to agree to pay a fee of seven Reichmarks, that's about a pound, give or take, per person, uh, per day, to the SS in order to secure the release of the 300 women who had been taken to Auschwitz. It is the only recorded instance of a large group of people being permitted to permanently leave that camp alive whilst the gas chambers were operational. Schindler's new factory was tasked with producing ammunition, but through some inventive accounting, including some falsification of documents, he was able to ensure that only one wagon load of ammunition was ever delivered. When he eventually fled the advancing Soviets for the second time in mid-45, there were 1,098 Jews in his factory. Schindler's story is the mark of a true yet unlikely hero for many reasons. On one level, it is the story of someone who acted not for ideological reasons, not to gain advantage or favour, and not for glory. He did it because it was right, because the opportunity was there, and on a human level, amongst all the suffering and persecution, he knew that he could, if he was so inclined, do the right thing, the moral thing, the human thing. Nobody made Schindler class Jewish children as essential workers to save their lives. Nobody forced him to make use of his networks and personal contacts to create the closest thing to a safe haven that could be manufactured for the Jews in the midst of Nazi-occupied Europe. But Schindler's story goes deeper than that. There is little in his early life to suggest that he was drawn to the Jewish community. He was out to make money. He joined the Nazi party to gain access to lucrative opportunities and initially lined his pocket in the process using the black market and bribery. And that's what makes Schindler remarkable because having built that personal fortune, he then spent it all on saving the lives of his workers. By the end of the war, he was bankrupt. Too many payments to the SS, too many bribes and too much food bought on the black market to feed his starving employees had meant that he had annihilated his personal wealth. Schindler is the ultimate demonstration of putting your money where your mouth is. Equally, this wasn't one act of heroism. It wasn't one spur of the moment decision or something that went undetected. Despite the scrutiny and the investigations, Schindler stuck to his project, refusing to be cowed by the Aryan arsewipes of the SS. And what makes this so much better is the way in which he went about it. The Nazis were obviously corrupt. I don't just mean morally, I mean in the literal sense. Corruption was widespread. They were also desperate. They had a war to win, a Reich to build, and they needed men like Schindler. His actions are therefore not only a great demonstration of unlikely heroism because of the nature of the man, but that they were unlikely because it took cunning, skill, and serious balls to play the Nazis at their own game. By exploiting their weaknesses and their greed, using their own methods against them, Oskar Schindler waved two fingers in the face of the Nazis' genocidal project. It was not only an unlikely act of heroism, it was one of the most incredible in the story of humanity. Well done.
I must say, a bit like the film that did go on a bit. Yeah, um, sorry, I have a habit for that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we should have the Spielberg amendment to the rules that if he's made a movie about someone, we can't bring him up because you can't really make decent jokes jokes about it. Um, but let's see if Holmes can. Well, firstly, I thought with Noah Lena we were going to have a week off the Holocaust this week. But honestly, that's, <laughs> that's not that. I mean, it's another great example. I mean, I've not, I've only basically seen the film, which I've seen a number of times. It is a, it is a great film. Um, it's all of what we see in the film. Um, the book is based on a book, Schindler's Ark, isn't it? But I've not read that. So is, are any liberties taken with the film? Yeah, I think quite a few liberties are taken. They seem to imply that the transition, Schindler's transition in mindset in terms of protect, protect, protecting his Jewish workforce happens quite early. And actually, there's a lot of debate about where that really happens. Um, although initially they show that he's kind of disinterested from what I've been able to dig up. It kind of seems that it happens quite a bit later, um, certainly not as almost as soon as he, he takes over. Um, there's also that kind of very emotive scene at the end where he's kind of going, you know, th this pin represents one person's life, this car, 10 people's lives. Why didn't I do more? Um, whether Schindler really lived in remorse for not having saved more is pretty debatable. Um, he, he he did bankrupt himself, though. You know, he spent that time building up his wealth and then spent it all. He For the rest of his life, he was supported by, um, well, in part by Jewish welfare organisations. Uh, tried to emigrate to Argentina, weirdly. Um, Hitler not involved in that one, for anybody who's interested in conspiracy theories. Um, so he, he lives quite an odd life afterwards, but I think some licenses are taken with the film, but not vast amounts. And, I mean, from watching the film, from what you said, it, it is staggering how he got away with it, you know, because it, it gets to a point where it's kind of obvious what he's doing. You know, bless him for doing it and everything, but... And you'd have thought towards the end, when you know, when they were when they were losing, they were committing all sorts of atrocities all over the place to just sort of to, to turn a semi-blind eye to what he was doing. When they must have had more than suspicion, suspicion shows, I guess, how incredibly well he played them. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, as far as I can make out, hangs on the fact that he was a munition. The factory was a munitions factory, and they desperately needed every single bullet that they could get their hands on. And in the process, if Shinner's going to turn around and say, "Look," I need these kids to clean out the inside of shell casings because they've got the, the tiny fingers to, to reach inside. Are you going to argue with them or are you just going to kind of accept that he is using the Jewish workforce to achieve something that's going to benefit the Reich? And I, I think that's kind of the linchpin of his success. Especially if they sling a few hundred marks your way at the same exactly. time. There's so many high ranking figures in the SS get done for embezzlement as well. Um, I've been to the um, Schindler factory, um, and that's quite remarkable. Uh, I, you know, and there's a there's a site in Berlin that I go to reasonably regularly, which is comparable, not in scale at all, um, because uh, it was it was just a fellow working out of a loft essentially making brushes, but he managed to make a few bribes here and there, and, and keep a Jewish workforce uh, going there after you know Goebbels had you know declared Berlin to be Judenfrei. Um, you know, through hiding people and paying the right people off. Um, didn't work in the end because it, it just reached a point where they just deported them anyway. So that makes Schindler's um, factory all, all the more remarkable. Really. I, I, I've been, I'm sorry, I've, I've been to the Schindler factory and I have to say I was slightly disappointed with it. 
as in you go, as in I thought I was going to go and see the actual a bit of the factory. But you go through and you go through all the offices, and the only sort of period bit is Schindler's office, of which there's sort of a some sort of glass sculpture thing with I can't remember that it's filled with that's underneath. So it's quite hard to. I sort of wanted to see what it looked and felt like, and I didn't really get that when I went. But this is just a slight aside, I suppose. We weren't allowed inside when we went, but. Because we kept walking through thinking, well, this has been okay. It's good. You know, you know, when, but when are we going to get to the factory floor? And then we didn't. It's because you weren't supposed to be inside homes. There wasn't clear signage because they weren't expecting a bunch of English tourists to go for a while. They were saying when we barge past the reception desk, I've never been good at Polish. (laughs) Bolton. Yeah, I I think, I think as, as things go, I, I I think Schindler's a a fascinating character and, and, you do you do have to wonder what what was going on in his head to to flip and flop back and forth the way he did um i think that's 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 a really good shout and that's kind of ruined it forever who whomever i choose to go next really doesn't it surely um, that's of marcus now well i don't know he he has made a good point on a direct message to me that he's traumatized by the dorset accents we we might give him a pass <laughs> Um, so I think, oh, we have a volunteer, Dr. Kit. Yeah, I'll go. I don't mind. I was, I was going to go for James because I thought that was going to be funny, but if you want to go. <laughs> well, I don't mind if you want to go for James. That's, that, that's cool. Um, but I'm more than happy to do mine now if you want. Yeah, go for it. You, you, you look keyed up, sir, and I can't see Amelia anymore, so you must be ready. Okay. Uh, well, I am going to take you to Dorset in 1935 and one Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Now, this is a kind of a double whammy because we're doing Unlikely Hero and I think most people know uh, the story of uh, of T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He was an incredibly unlikely person to bring together um, the, uh, the tribes in the desert to help overthrow the Ottomans. But I'm not going to tackle that story at all. We're going to begin with his death. So T. Lawrence was driving along the country roads just outside Wareham. There were two boys cycling ahead and he swerved to avoid them on his motorbike. He went straight over the handlebars and he wasn't wearing a motorbike helmet. He suffered a traumatic brain injury. And six days later, despite the best efforts of his neurosurgeon, an Australian army veteran, called Hugh Cairns, he died. And this really bothered Cairns. It stayed with him. Now, a couple of years later, as you know, the Second World War broke out and Cairns was assigned as a consultant in the army. And he began to do work to revolutionize healthcare. He instigated the first clinical trials for penicillin. Uh, He helped create mobile neurosurgical units to aid troops on the front lines. But the Dorset accent, Lawrence of Arabia's death, kept bothering him. And so in 1941, he did a piece of research looking at deaths from motorbike accidents. It was published in the British British Medical Journal, and it looked at dispatch rider deaths. During the first 21 months of the war, he wrote, the number of motorcyclists and pillion passengers killed on the road was 2,279. The frequency of head injuries was high, and in a number of cases, the fatal outcome might have been avoided if adequate protection of the head had been worn. 
Conversely, he reported that he had seen seven cases of motorcyclists crashing wearing crash helmets, and none of them were fatal. Now, where do crash helmets come from? It's actually from Brooklands uh, and the race circuit there. They were doing motorcycle, motorcycle racing in the First World War, and a, an officer at the track, Eric Gardner, noticed that there were a lot of head injuries. He commissioned someone down in Soho to create canvas and shellac ham helmets to protect people. And then he managed to get these involved on the Isle of Man TT. He made them compulsory for the race. And when one of the racers crashed in headfirst into a gate, the helmet saved his life, stopping all of the grumbling about having to wear this stupid thing. But Lawrence of Arabia's death had a much wider impact because Cairns was able to use the evidence from that, from this high profile case, to ensure that helmets became compulsory for all dispatch riders, first in the British Army and then in the Royal Air Force. In 1946, he published a follow up study in the BMJ, this time with a graph showing the difference in casualties once helmets were introduced. Despite more men enlisting, despite more motorbikes being on the roads, despite more traffic being on the roads from the Americans arriving, the number of fatalities had been halved. Mass-produced helmets became available in 1954 uh, with the Bell 500, a fiberglass helmet. And in 1973, several decades later, they were finally instigated as compulsory around the world. But it all stems back to Cairns' persistence and his evidence that he used for the British Army. And that all stems to Lawrence of Arabia. So there you have it. From a strange quirk of fate, the person who is most responsible for, for bicycle helmets, for motorbike helmets, for crash helmets in general being on our roads is Lawrence of Arabia, saving millions of people's lives, hundreds of thousands every year from his death. Well done, sir. Sorry, doctor. Um, that, was, that was really good. I like that. Was it the Bro Superior one SS100 or something he was riding at the time, was it? Isn't it a triumph in the movie? I know that's a weird... It's digression. in the uh, Imperial War Museum, I believe. Hmm. It's in, in, in the Lean movie, they put him on a triumph or something silly like that. But anyways, that's, that's by the way. That was... That was, that was that's raised the tone again. Thank you very much, Kit. Um, I don't know. Let's let's go to Lockie. What what did what did you make of that? I, I thought it was great. Surely Cairns is the hero rather than Lawrence. I mean, Lawrence it, it, showed an example of how not to do it. I would absolutely say Cairns was the greater hero, but we're looking for unlikeliest hero, not greatest hero, and purely for the unlikely connection with Lawrence of Arabia and motorcycle crash helmets, uh, he gets my vote. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm just I'm just disappointed no Dorset accents. Your dar is it? Your dar is accent, my daughter, my lover. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I I, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I had a, the worst crash I've ever seen on a bike it was a push bike rather than a motorbike, but it, it happened right in front of me. Um, and and this guy had just overtaken me coming down a hill, and and there's a T junction at the top of the road, and I was slowing down to stop at the T junction. He he didn't quite so much, and the timing was absolutely uncanny because just as he sort of shot to swing across the T junction, car came across, slam, took him out completely. Um, he went up in the air, bounced down, um, not moving. And I'm like, he's dead. 
There's, there's no way. And it, and it got even worse when I sort of went over to, to you know, I'm, I'm calling uh, emergency services. There's blood coming all over the place. But, you know, his helmet was was on his head. The screen on the car um, cracked all over, like, you know, in a, in a bajillion pieces. Um, their air ambulance comes along and I, I was just like, no, the, the guy's gone. Taken back to hospital, a few crack ribs. It was all right. Helmets are ridiculous. There you go. That's my helmet anecdote. Next time, if that happens again, Lockie, you've got five minutes on uh, T. Lawrence and you can, so you can tell him, relate to him while he's lying there waiting for the ambulance to turn up. Yeah, he'll appreciate that. I, I, I liked it. I thought it was an interesting story. I think the time it took for helmets to become compulsory and the involvement of several other people, I think, causes... that. that it's quite difficult to class it as one sort of heroic act. It was just an evolution of things. It always amazes me why it took so long for people to work it out anyway. I mean, even the Vikings had helmets. They could realise that you, your head needed to be protected. You know, Not that it's these, these guys' fault, because they tried to do something about it and put a process in place. But, yeah. And then you get... I guess when they brought it... From then, it not becoming compulsory until 1973. It was like, when did seatbelts become compulsory? Late 70s, early 80s? Uh, it depends if you're in the front or the back. It, it was different. It, there were two. It was phased in. Which, which in itself is a nonsense. You know, we were <laughs> better then. You know, but I remember when I was little and it was in. The, it was on the. It was on the news and you had people sort of going, "Well, I ain't doing that. It's my right, isn't it?" It's like, oh come on, it's no effort. You know, it could save your life or your partner's life. But well, it's, it's that would sound last... really dickish if it wasn't for the non-mask wearers last year. And you go, oh shit, people aren't really are that much of an asshole. That's it. I think that with, with the pandemic, I've learned that, uh, that there are a lot of people who are assholes out there. People walking, I've got an exemption. I don't have to wear a mask. Mate, being a prick isn't an exemption. Um, <laughs> but, uh... but it is a condition. <laughs> the, yeah, sorry. You've got me thinking about mask and anti-vaxxers and you just sort of wonder, well, I don't want to, but um, going into to your point, uh, I mean, the, the tricky thing with being a science historian is that all science is an evolution, um, uh, unless you want to go into the theories of uh, of Thomas Kuhn and uh, his idea of, uh, I, I can bring in the philosophy if you really want about uh, scientific revolutions, but um, generally the theory is that uh, all, all science essentially builds up on one idea after another after another. And then there's suddenly a big leap forward when someone makes a breakthrough, and then it's incremental again. Um, I would say that the decision to actually go ahead and, and actually look seriously at crash helmets was one of those giant leaps. And then we have just made those increments. Yeah, that's true. And I, I like the way you've just tried to future proof your arguments for next week, the week after, and the week after. That's choices as well, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think crash helmets in 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 and of itself is a fascinating subject. You, you you have massive moves forward from you think just Formula One from Sterling Moss's polo helmet to the, the the carbon fiber ones they have now are quite something. Unless you're of course Helmut Conning, who very sadly his helmet wasn't the, what killed him. It was the the guardrail going underneath his chin and taking his helmet off the rest of his body. That was the the bad side of it. So that's me lowering the tone. This yeah, time. that's that's one for the that's one for the child listeners. Yeah, that's why I was trying not to say other other words for that one, but that was that was a bit terrible. Um, on that happy note of you know decapitation in Formula One spectator sports, why don't we take a break, get some refills, 
Um, and then we're going to go to Chris because I think it's his turn. So let's let's take a minute. I'm going to get some 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 Irish Irish whiskey to go with the wine I'm not drinking. Right, welcome back. We are now re recharged. The second half of this podcast is going to be sponsored by the Dead Rabbit Irish Whiskey um, from the wonderful guys in New York who have made whiskey that I am now drinking, and it is fantastic. So if they're listening, we are in need of a sponsor, guys. Um, we are about halfway through this evening, and I thought while we take this moment, I'm going to go to my very bad attempts at managing social media earlier because I put out a call for our wonderful followers to, to throw a few ideas into the mix. One will come up later. It seems a pop popular one. Um, but interestingly, one that I hadn't really realized um, from Tansy Kelly Robson was Brian Urquhart of Market Garden fame. Um, if, like me, that's all you really know about him, his subsequent career as a, as a public servant and the work he did with... with um, um, Peacekeeper is absolutely amazing. It, it is too much to go on now, mainly because it'll basically be me reading the Rusi entry for him. But I would highly recommend. Look away shockingly recently, didn't he? This year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was earlier this year and end of last. Yeah, but what what a remarkable career, um, and so much more so than that 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 one incident in, in the Second World War. So let's highly recommend looking up that um the uh, the members of the Hanforth parish council came up once or twice and jackie <laughs> weaver um hello if you're watching you're welcome on any time to shout at us um and of course dr elsie english came in for as well from from raquel and only we had a chairman as good as jackie weaver tonight i mean i know we well, we'd be we'd be done by now um you read the You're orders, Charlotte White. You read the orders. You've got no authority here, Mark. <laughs> you see, in 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 light of that, I have actually written down a, a running order of people I was going to go to tonight to try to have a semblance of a semblance of you know order and and whatever it is that she has because that that was remarkable. Um, and then let's see what else we got here on Twitter. Basically, it's just Charlie re replying to people. <laughs> trying to cover up who who it was she it's has covered brownies in a minute. Yeah. Um, oh. uh, Leonard Cheshire, that is a very good shout, actually, because that was that was a, a gentleman who, who who changed quite definitely. Nicholas Winton, of course, yes. So um, that was Warren Smith for Nicholas Winton. Um, Haunted histories giving us uh, Leonard Cheshire. So thank you for getting involved because none of them are going to be coming up in the second half of this show, um, <laughs> except for one. But we will come back to that in a moment. We're going to return to the Sam's household now um, before Chris falls asleep on us. Um, and we're going to see whether or not he is going to outdo his daughter and son, or he's going to, you know, take one for the team and make sure that he doesn't outrank his kids. Chris, over to you. Uh, okay, so uh, mine is unlikely uh, for three reasons. Um, one is it has uh, nothing to do with boats. Uh, there, there are no Germans involved, and uh, it's unlikely that anyone's actually heard of him. Uh, I am going to be doing the Native American chief uh, Pontiac, who is not a car make. I've, um, I've heard of him, if that helps. <laughs> ah. Oh, yeah, you, you've got an excuse, though, because he's from your, your neck of the woods, sort of. 
Um, the Seven Year War or um, the French and Indian War of 1757 uh, in the North Americas uh, saw the si uh, both sides trying to use native uh, forces. Um, I'm going to say um, a lot <laughs> uh, for their own game, notably by the French uh, um, Mongolida and unfortunately, um, and probably quite famously, uh, Fort William Henry, if anyone's seen Last of the Mohicans. The French were somewhat uh, better at allying with the natives compared to the British. The, in 1758, General Forbes tried to recruit the Cherokee to his cause, but believed that they were so inferior that they should um, be treated as slaves and defer to him as po where possible. One chief uh, left, refused with, and took 700 of his men with him um, with all the guns and gifts that the British had give them, given them. But then Forbes uh, worked on his approach and um, managed to unite. Sorry, am I boring you, Soph? <laughs> Just yawning away. Um, he managed to get uh, a large group of, of the natives to work with him. But the French were much nicer to the natives. They because the French colonial system involved deporting criminals and, and prostitutes who didn't want to leave the town areas, they didn't want to farm, they didn't want to leave the coasts. So large areas of New France were just left to the natives to live as they wanted with the odd trading post and fortification. The French would give gifts to the natives so the native chiefs could um, then use them as bribes to maintain their position and thus work with the French. In the Treaty of Paris in 1763, England took over all the French territories in North America, which, and they immediately began to recant on the French approach. General Geoffrey Amherst, who is quite an evil person, if anyone picks up on that, um, he got rid of all the gifts. He decided that uh, the natives should be relocated for uh, British, uh, English and British settlers. He also came up with this great idea of using smallpox to wipe out the, the native clans by uh, you taking bl blankets from smallpox hospitals and issuing them to the tribes as gifts where possible. The natives as well began to get a bit restless. They didn't want, they liked the French. They didn't like the English. The English treated them like slaves or worse. They refused, the, they put more soldiers in obviously the relocation, uh, one Native American priest started to say that all the gifts and alcohol and things that the British were giving them were uh, making them like the, the white man and should be rejected. And slowly this feeling of hatred started to build and build. And this is when um, our man Pontiac steps up. Uh, Pontiac was born somewhere between 1714 and 1720. By 1747, he was a war chief and allied with the French possibly served at Mongolia, which saw the death of General Braddock. Um, and throughout the Seven Year War, he continued to support, support the French and afterwards. And in fact, didn't really believe that this, the Treaty of Paris um, actually happened and was just a, a ruse by the British just to take over their lands. And he said, it, um, what he said in a war council was, it's important to, um, to know my brothers that we, um, that we exterminate from our lands the, the, uh, war, the British, I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> this is awful. Um, yeah, basically he said, we need to get rid of the British. Um, and so they, they um, besieged the fortress of Detroit, uh, the fort of Detroit. Now the war is often referred to as Pontiac's war and the British believed that Pontiac was actually controlling all the tribes in the area, which isn't actually true. Pontiac was more, was seen more of his action of besieging Detroit was kind of the uh, 
the flame that lit the powder keg and tribes all over the air, all the area of Ohio and New France rose up in rebellion and besieged several of the forts. Um, in fact, by nine of the 11 forts were captured and Fort, and fort Sandusky was destroyed. The, uh, although um, his siege of Detroit failed because uh, someone had warned the British that he was coming, he was able to repulse the British at the Battle of Bloody Run on the 31st of July which saw um, apparently the creek ran red with blood from the dead, but there were only 20 dead and 34 wounded, including Captain Daliel, who um, was killed. Um, but repulsing 250 British soldiers was quite some feat, considering there were only about 500 in the area at the time. Um, Amherst also considered him to be quite a, a, a foe and uh, put a 200 pound bounty on his head. And that's 200 pounds in 1763 money. So it's several million in today's. But by this point, Pontiac's style was in decline, but his name continued to live on. And even though he um, had to retreat and hide, people were still rebelling in his name and fighting for their freedoms against the, against the wicked British oppressor. Um, the British, still not understanding the wider noted, uh, problem of this uh, revolt, sought out um, Pontiac and they took him to New York. And on the 25th of July, 1763, he signed a peace treaty with them, which basically um, meant that the British could move the army into New France. But because of the brutality of the war, um, which I'll come to in a minute, the English crown said, well, we can't, we can't put settlers in harm's way anymore. And so they drew a line from Quebec down to Florida and uh, from the mountains to the Mississippi, which, were, which settlers were no longer allowed to go in, and the land became reserved for the natives, and this would be their land um, safe from, from the British. So it could be argued that the rebellion failed because the British military was still present, but you could see that in a way he was, the only he was the only native chief who managed to maintain their lands <laughs> and freedoms um, to live their own lives. It also, the Amherst policy of uh, anti-gifts was scrapped as well. So in a way, they won quite a bit. So what happened to Pontiac post-war? Well, it didn't end very well for him. Um, he uh, got so, pr so um, proud of himself, so arrogant, up his own orifice, he uh, was kicked out of his own village for being too proud, and um, then eventually was uh, got into a knife fight with someone, and then their nephew came around and killed him, killed him several, uh, in 1767. Whether the, the freedoms uh, would have been kept for, for in perpetuity is hard to say because the uh, cheating rotten Americans then had a revolution and got rid of us and then recanted all of our plans. So it, whether it was a full-time reprise or a, a, a temporary one, Pontiac deserves to be remembered as an unlikely hero coming out of nowhere we don't even know when he was born, what, what he did for most of his life, because it's not recorded. But he fought for the freedoms of his people against a, a brutal oppressor and won a certain amount. Well done. I think if we're all honest here, you should have got Sophie to do that for you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 think, I think Pontiac is, is, is a fascinating character, um, one that we... we uh... <laughs> know quite a bit about of course canadian capital is named after his tribe the ottawas um one would take issue to say that the french were the ones that started the uh, dodgy blanket thing first and then the british just copied i liked it i think it was good i am not a judge though um and 
I'm going to look through the, the, the haze of smoke that's been on Holmes' screen for the last little while and go to him. Yeah, I, I like to... It helps me concentrating, Babe does, and also I don't have to get outside either. Um, I mean, that was quite interesting, but it was another slow burn one, really, and it was one that took place over quite a long period of time. And then I was slightly confused, because at one point, you, Chris, I think you said... Um, it wasn't even sure how much Pontiac was controlling the native troops while the fighting was going on. So is he a hero for his military achievements or is it more because of the settlement that he got, which I guess is sort of quasi-political achievement? Uh, it's a combination of the two. He, he became a, a symbol, sort of a Robin Hood character to uh, that um, everyone, he, he lit the spark. So everyone, all the anger and oppression that had been going on for year, for the last six years, was embodied in him so for the british he was the, the 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 boogeyman that they had to defeat but it was he he had no control over the wider campaign at all but yeah um because the british thought he was the the ringleader um yeah they they bargained with him so his moment was the political settlement if you like and then after that he just fizzled out and came a bit full of himself until he was eventually murdered yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> Okay, I mean, I, I'm, I'm slightly relieved that you didn't do Saviour the Dog's Brother, which I thought you might have done at the start, and we would hear about Saviour again from a slightly different perspective. <laughs> it's like with an extra of three minutes involved. <laughs> and all, I mean, that was interesting to me. I guess I'm lacking empathy because despite Matt, what Matt said a few minutes ago, I'm not aware of the story of Pontiac at all, probably because I'm not Canadian or from that part of the world, but it was interesting hearing about him. It, it, it's it's a fascinating period, especially sort of before and just after the the Americans do a runner, um, because the the politics with the tribes actually lays a lot of the groundwork for everything that happens afterwards. The treaties that were struck during you know the re the revolution and then then again in the War of eighteen twelve, and then a bit later during the the Fenian raids. Um, a lot of that is still mixed up in the politics of, of First Nations um, today. Um, and, you know, the, the Canadian, the British and the American governments have a lot to answer for. But not to let me sway Lockie's opinion in any way. It, it reminds me, I guess, a little of, of New Zealand in the sense that if, if you're the Indigenous people and you give the British a bloody nose, then you, you, you're inclined to get a better deal um, than if you... Say, hey, you guys in red, you're welcome. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, maybe I feel like he's not that unlikely in the sense that well, he's, he's the war chief of a prominent tribe uh, with a strong resentment against um, the invaders. I'd say he's quite likely to um, get stuck in, isn't he? I mean, yeah. of, all, of all the people who are, who are you know, potentially going to cause a, cause a problem, I'd say, you know, someone, someone with that job description uh, would be would be on the list. But, um, but for the British, he was fairly unlikely because they didn't they didn't rate the natives as, as a threat at all. That's why they only had 500 men stuck in the entire um, region of, uh, of Ohio and New France. They just didn't expect them to be a problem at all. Fair enough. Um, yeah. No, I, again, Ohio I now it's about the same. <laughs> I, again, I, like Holmes, it's not something that's, that I'm terribly familiar with. So I thought that was interesting. That was nice. 
Hmm. It didn't get thrown out. I have to remember that the next time we do one of these, and I'm and I'm a contestant. I'll do some uh, first First Nation stuff because no, no one will have a clue, and I could you know embellish it as much as I like. Um, right. I keep saying we need an episode about to come. So almost had a first uh, actual like nation of First Nations, but never happens. The Americans killed them. Bastards. Well, yeah, that that's you know, Lock, Lockie made a good point. Is you know, the, those original treaties, those that pushed back did get a better deal. Whereas with the Americans, those that pushed back were just slaughtered. Yeah, annihilated. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's terrible, heartbreaking. And let's not drag this down much further after, you know, Schindler. Um, let's go to Beth. Let's see how her new glasses are working. I've been listening to all of these and, Oh, oh man, you're <laughs> yeah. Um, Someone's be... got to raise the tone, Beth. It's, it's, I, it's... See, the thing is, I don't think I'm going to raise it. I think I'm just going to shift it slightly to a different side. Yeah, come on, um, just, I'll, I'll be the judge of that. Tangled. Oh man, right. I'm actually like a bit nervous can, about this one. I don't know why. Can, can I just interrupt, actually? Zach, can you move your head to the left or the right? There is a minion hanging from your ceiling. Okay, that's all right. I'm... <laughs> I was thinking the whiskey was kicking in a bit soon. No, no, it absolutely is, Marcus. Um, I, but that, that's how you drew me. So, you know, when I said paint me like one of your French girls, I was expecting something a bit better than that. Um, it's got black and white stripes. I mean, it's French. It's a couple of onions on the neck. I, I'm glad to hear that. Zach is now finding the minions not scary. So, you know, that's one step. It's progress, isn't it? Yeah. I did have to hold my hand through all the film. Well, no, you, you insisted on holding my hand, Marcus. I mean, that was a pretty tight you grip you had there. You wouldn't be the popcorn. Hopefully there'll be a Trolls one up there next week. I, I, I still think that Minions movie is one of the greatest movies of, you know, the past 10 years. And what you bet doesn't do the Minions... I can't remember their names. Yeah, we're, we're basically teeing, teeing Beth up to do Minions here, and she's not, because she is going to do... Something completely different. Um, right, let me get started. Okay, so, it was the 30th of July, 1966. England had just beaten West Germany 4-2 in the Football World Cup in London. The team, led by the great captain, Bobby Moore, were awarded the Jules Rimet Trophy which had been awarded since the very first World Cup in 1930. It was designed by a French sculptor made of gold-plated sterling silver on a lapis lazuli base. It stood 35 centimetres high and weighed 3.8 kilograms and comprised of a cup being supported by a winged figure representing Nike, the ancient goddess of victory. But it's not really about the football that's going to be that I'm going to talk about today. It's our unlikely hero, and our unlikely hero comes in a completely different format. The Football Association had received the World Cup trophy in January 1966 in preparation for the tournament that was to come. And it had been kept at the headquarters at Lancaster Gate, apart from a couple of publicity events. But in the February, the Stanley Gibbons Stamp Company received permission to place the trophy in their stamp ex exhibition in March on the condition that it would be under guard at all times. The exhibition was held in the Westminster Central Hall and opened on the 19th of March 1966 and was a major attraction. 
Two uniformed officers guarded the, guarded the trophy around the clock, reinforced by two plainclothes police officers during the day. Additional guards stood beside the display cabinet when the exhibition was open, but nobody was watching the trophy all the time. On Sunday the 20th of March, so just the next day, as the guards were beginning their circuit at noon, at noon, they noticed that someone had forced open the display case and the rear doors of the building and stolen the trophy. The wooden bar that held the door closed was lying on the floor. Thieves had removed the screws and bolts that held it in place. They'd removed the padlock from the back of the display case, taken the trophy and left exactly the way they came in. None of the guards had seen or heard anything suspicious at all, though one of them had reported he'd seen a strange man by the public telephone box when he was visiting the laboratory on the first floor, and I'm adamant that was probably Doctor Who. So Scotland Yard took control of the case and gave it to the flying squad. Officers interviewed the guards and two maintenance workers who happened to be nearby at the time. Police began to look for two potential suspects, but the description that they had been given was not really that well it's not something that they could really go on there were varying reports you know there were ransom demands that from the thieves that they wanted fifteen thousand pounds firstly in one pound and five pound notes but then later on in five and ten pound notes the the soft lining of the trophy was cut out and sent to the fa to prove that they had the uh, the uh, the trophy, and that if they didn't send the ransom demand, it would be melted down. Eventually, a plan was put in place with officers from the flying squad. Um, they were travelling in unmarked vehicles, and they were going to do the uh, the ultimate film handing over of money, where it's not really money; it's just the top layer is money, and the rest of it is paper. And they were going to hand it over to the thieves. However, in the days before, in the minutes beforehand, um, the uh, the people who had stolen the trophy were in the area, and they could see these vehicles that weren't didn't appear to be ordinary vehicles; these unmarked vehicles, and they got spooked and uh, ran off and hid the trophy. And it is our unlikely hero who discovered the trophy. They late it was lately discovered on Sunday, the twenty seventh of March, just seven days after it was stolen wrapped in newspaper and found in a hedge in a garden in Upper Norwood, South London. And it was found by our unlikely hero, a black and white four-year-old collie dog by the name of Pickles, who'd been out for a walk with his owner, David Corbett. When Corbett opened the parcel, he recognised the trophy as he saw the names of the previous winners of the trophy on the bottom of it. He handed the parcel to the police station at Gypsy Hill, and they took him and the trophy to Cannon Row Police Station, where Harold Mays of the FA identified the trophy. Corbett was briefly suspected of being involved in the theft, but he did have an alibi for the time. But it was Pickles, the dog, who had really discovered it in a hedge when he was sniffing around for something that had taken his interest. And at that point afterwards, Pickles became a celebrity. He starred in a film in 1966 called The Spy with a Cold Nose with Eric Sykes and June Whitfield. He also appeared on several television programmes being hailed for his bravery, including Blue Peter. And the pair of them picked up rewards totalling in, that, in money of that time, £6,000, 
which they used to buy a house in a nice leafy suburb in Surrey. Pickles was awarded the silver medal of the National Canine Defence League. He was also named Dog of the Year, Italian Dog of the Year, and awarded a year of free food by pet food manufacturer Spillers. David Corbett and Pickles were invited to the Players' Celebration Dinner after the World Cup final with the England team, where Corbett did recall Pickles indulging in some of his more basic needs. Um, we went into the hotel with all these celebrities and Pickles walked over to the lift shaft and did a wee. I felt so embarrassed. We had been invited up to the main reception and all of the wives of the footballers were there, but they hadn't been invited. I have never seen so many angry women. Afterwards, we went, the England team went out onto a balcony and the street was full of people. We went with them and Bobby Moore picked Pickles up and showed him off to the crowd and there were cheers for this brave dog. Unfortunately, Pickles didn't see live to see much of his uh, the fame and celebrity that he had achieved by finding the uh, the World Cup trophy. He died the next year in 1967 when he was strangled by his lead that got caught on a tree branch while he was chasing a cat near his new home in Surrey. He was buried in the owner's back garden, and his collar is now on display in the National Football Museum in Manchester. He's also been. Uh, fictionalised in a story in a 2006 ITV drama called Pickles, the dog who won the World Cup, being voiced by Harry Enfield, of all people. And in September 2018, a blue plaque was put up near the spot where Pickles found the World Cup trophy in Upper Norwood, South London. South London for the win is all I can <laughs> say there. And thank you for stopping touching your glasses. I thought I was going to die. Having been made to drink every time you were touching your glasses, it's doubly mean because Beth was one of the inventors of the uh, James Weight Watt drinking game as well. Yeah, so I, I decided on the whiskey a bit earlier with that one. Um, poor Pickles, yeah, you know, gets a lifetime supply of dog food and then croaks it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. What, what 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 are you going to do? But to be Women fair, killed him so that they didn't have to honour that. Okay, it was a conspiracy by Spillers. <laughs> <laughs> they suddenly realised this dog was going to live forever. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, losing the World Cup after you've been brutally corrupt to get the World Cup in the first place. But you know, let's let's not bring up. Wait, really? You think that's interesting? <laughs> Well, it's standard. Honestly, no, it's not. I'm, 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 I'm trying to make make this last a bit longer because we're running out of people, um, and I've got half a bottle of whiskey left. Lockie, football, dogs, trophies. What do you think? Um, wrong shaped ball for me. Uh, it's a it's a well known story. I know. Um, I didn't get the Doctor Who reference. Um, it wasn't. Second. No. What? No. Um, I think your glasses look nice. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Two, 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 what, Beth? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to stew here and, yeah. Not, not happy. <laughs> no, 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 no questions from me. No. <laughs> Let, let, let's go to the round ball aficionado on the other side of my screen, Holmes. Yeah, I, I could see where this is going from quite early on. In that, when I was younger, I was quite intrigued by Pickles and his story because basically 
I grew up in a little village in Staffordshire and then our football team had a trip down to Wembley and we all went to Wembley and went in the changing rooms, went up to Royal Box and everything else like that. And everyone got a commemorative magazine to read on the coach on the way home. Now, I was a Chelsea fan then. There was nothing in that commemorative magazine about Chelsea at all. So the only thing, I was on a bus full of glory hunting Liverpool fans and a smattering of Villa supporters because they used to be quite good then. And so the only thing that I could empathise with in the commemorative magazine was like a three-page article on pickles. But I couldn't remember whether he was, whether the cup was found in Birmingham or London. I had to Google it because obviously in Birmingham, the FA Cup was stolen when Villa won it in 1894 or 95. And I just wanted to make I wanted to check whether this sort of sporting trophy theft was a localised Birmingham thing or not. But I've just done that. And obviously it's it's not. It happens in London as well. But I think the possible elephant in the room here is that all of the heroes we've heard about tonight have made a conscious choice in some way, shape or form. This, over a this is the time. thing. This is the thing. I think I kind of went the wrong angle with this. Well, I mean, <laughs> Pickles was basically, he probably went into that bush, basically, and I'm going to have to swear here, well, he probably went into that bush wanting to smell the piss of other dogs. That's why he went in there. And it was just, that's what dogs do, yeah? But he went in there, and as a <laughs> coincidental byproduct, he happened to find the World Cup. That's all there was, you know, and he deserves all the rewards that he gets. And I like his story, but I think the hero has to have made some sort of conscious decision to take a course of action that results in him being a hero. Oh, I almost went with the Jamaican bobsleigh team. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> in <laughs> Holmes's defence about the trophy and Birmingham, um, there is the, in the 1980s, obviously Villa won the, the league and then they won the European Cup as well. I can't remember which trophy it was, but the whole Villa team got smashed in a pub and they did almost lose, lose the trophy as well. Um, I think they caught it before it was about to be accidentally drunkenly half-hitched into a car. <laughs> so in Holmes' defence, there is a, an odd tradition of trophies almost going missing in Birmingham. <laughs> But to be fair, there's a lot of scrap in Birmingham. There's plenty of places to get rid of it. True. Right? <laughs> I, I think it all depends on what the definition of unlikely is. So, yeah, I think a dog finding the World Cup in a bush in South London, that's pretty unlikely. Because if you're leaving something even remotely gold-coloured in Upper Norwood at the moment, it wouldn't last long enough for a dog to find it in a bush. Well, you um, say that, but I've sort of dumped a plastic stroller outside my house and it's been there for three weeks and I'm, I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not blinking <laughs> first on this one. Right. I'm really tempted, seeing as the glasses as a thing, I might just sit here with my glasses, like just keep my fingers on my glasses all the time so you just have to constantly drink all of you. <laughs> well, he does have half a bottle of whiskey left. Drink it all now. I, 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 I can be here all night. Um <laughs> Whether or not the rest of you do is an entirely different matter. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, right, let's, let's go to James. I think let's, let's see if he can, he, can, he can lower the tone from pickles. Because I, I liked, despite having to drink half a bottle of whiskey during that entire thing, um, I liked pickles. So let's see what you can do, young James. Right, I, I bent the rules slightly because originally I was only going to choose the in that case, I'm going to mute you and we're going to move on because we don't like rule benders. Um, (laughs) 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 He's actually muted him. (laughs) You actually muted me. I was reading my notes, you bugger. Well, Read the orders, James. Read them and stand them. Well, okay, Matt. Because of that, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what, Matt? All uh, t- t- tonight, tonight, it's best glasses. And th- that- what I like about this is, in our group, is James is the fuddy Tory councillor, and that was a twist that we never expected. Yeah. Right. Does that make you Jackie? Oh, wow, cool. No, it definitely makes you a Jackie. Nice. Um, Charlie. Oh, hello. Are, 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 are you ready for this? I think, because we've whistled through this again, I think I'm doing this wrong. I think Alex must talk more than I do to make right. these things stretch out a bit longer. So, Sophie well, is still sure. with us. So we might have to get her to help choose in a minute. She can't choose herself. But at the moment, we're going underwater. Charlie, take it away. <laughs> we're not going well I don't know if we're going too far underwater with this because I don't actually know where the thing that I'm, I'm talking about is I have assumed that it was overground but correct me if I'm wrong if it was underground um, no, I've, just, I've, just had, I've just had a lot to drink so I'm just making okay because I'm going well out of my my comfort zone here but when we started looking at unlikely heroes uh, there was a name that was suggested to me by Margot thankfully, uh, gave me this great idea. And I just couldn't think of anything better for an unlikely hero than someone who accidentally kind of saved the world. So in the early hours of the 26th of September, 1983, the Soviet Union's early warning systems detected an incoming missile strike from the United States. Computer readouts suggested that several missiles had been launched And the protocol for the Soviet military was to retaliate with nuclear attack of its own, to strike back and to strike back harder. Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was the officer on duty that morning at the Serpukov 15 bunker near Moscow, which housed the command centre of the Soviet early warning satellites, codenamed OKO or OKO. 
Petrov graduated from the Kiev Higher Engineering Radio Technical College of the Soviet Air Forces in 1972 and joined the Soviet Air Defense Forces after that. He was then assigned to the organization that oversaw the new early warning system that was intended to detect ballistic missile, missiles um, from NATO countries. It was his job to register any missile strikes and to report them to the Soviet military and political leadership. His role was simple and it was finite. Watch the computer screen and report up the chain if anything happens. But when his moment came, Petrov froze. He said in Russian, and I'm not going to do an accent today, the siren howled, but I just sat there for a few seconds, staring at the big backlit red screen with the word launch on it. Still, he remained frozen. The early warning system was telling him that the reliability of the alert was at its highest level. The system had no doubt at all. America had launched a missile. He said, a minute later, the siren went off again. The second missile was launched, then the third and a fourth and a fifth. Computers changed their alerts from launch to missile strike. Now in the political climate between the US and the USSR in 1983, a retaliatory strike would have been a certainty. He said, I had all the data. I had sent up my, if I had sent my report up the chain of command, nobody would have said a word against it. There was no rule about how long we were allowed to think before we reported a strike, but we knew that every second of procrastination took away valuable time that the Soviet Union's military and political leadership needed to be informed without delay. All I had to do was reach for the phone to raise the direct line to our top commanders, but I couldn't move. I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan. Petrov's hesitation may just have saved the world. Let's just take a moment to imagine what would have happened had Petrov not hesitated, had he not frozen before his flashing computer screen, had he picked up the phone and reported the attack to his superiors. You know, at this point, Obviously, I would defer to our resident science expert, Dr. Kit, um, for exactly what would have happened if the missile strike had have happened. But with all of the authority of a Hollywood actress talking about Pantene Pro-V, I can say that the science bit is lots of people would have died. Very, very nasty. Um, it would not have been good. The Soviet leader at the time, Yuri Andropov, had a profound distrust of American leaders. If Petrov had reported the satellite warnings, this doubtless would have provoked the Soviet leadership into aggression. Soviet leadership thinking at this time was, the Americans might attack us, so we had better attack first. This incident is credited with being the closest the world has ever come to potential nuclear disaster. But it may have been that the heightened Cold War standoff of the early 1980s was actually the thing that ultimately averted disaster. Because when those five missiles were reported, Petrov couldn't understand why the US would send so few. His training had been in preparation for all out war, shock and awe, fire from above. For the US to send only five missiles just didn't seem likely. So he dismissed the early warnings as a false alarm and decided not to report them to his superiors. Instead, he called the Soviet Army's headquarters and reported a system malfunction. 
Years later, he said, and in true Russian style, 23 minutes later, I realized nothing had happened. If there'd been a real strike, then I would already know about it. It was such a relief. 30 years after the event, he admitted that the odds had probably been about 50-50, and he'd never been absolutely sure that the alert was a false one. I'm quite glad that, um, that Matt put the shout out earlier to um, the History Hack followers on Twitter for an unlikely hero because um, Stanislav Petrov was actually one of the names suggested. It was from the guy from the Cold War, who is at Cold War Channel on Twitter, if you want to follow him. And I asked him if he could send me a killer line about Petrov. And very much like I've done, he's sent me Petrov's own words because we have them. And because he was just such a self-depreciating, very, very Russian man. And he said, I let myself mistrust the system because I'm a man, not a computer. It's clear with the benefit of hindsight that Stanislav Petrov was a hero. He really did save the world, though he never saw himself as one. That was my job, he said. But they were lucky it was me on shift that night. God, can you imagine if there'd been some hothead idiot sat there, you know, all pumped up and ready to go. If somebody had maybe one too many coffees um, next to the button, that wouldn't have been good. What makes him history's most unlikely hero is that all of this was a dereliction of duty. His orders were clear. He was to report any sign of missile strikes and he chose to disobey his orders either as a result of this gut feeling or, frankly, because he choked when it was time to do his job. Petrov was reprimanded for what happened that night, funnily enough, not for what he actually did, but for his mistakes in filling in the logbook. He explained that particular failure in also the most beautifully Russian way, saying, because I had a phone in one hand and an intercom in the other, and I don't have a third hand. He never spoke publicly about the incident until 10 years after it happened. He said, I thought it was shameful for the Soviet army that our system failed this way. So it wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union that the world actually learned just how close this call had been. Press attention around Petrov's story led to him being honored by the United Nations mm -hmm. and receiving several awards internationally. He's a fantastic example of how one unlikely man can make a difference to millions of lives accidentally. Stanislav Petrov is the ultimate unlikely hero whose name you may not have heard, but you'll never forget. A man who saved the world by doing nothing. Well done. I, I think I think that was very good. Now, if, if I'm brutally honest here, I thought you were going to be doing Vasily Arkhipov, who refused to launch the nuclear torpedo during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but <laughs> yours, yours, was, yours was better. Um, but does someone derelicting their duty mean that they're unlikely? Lockie, how, where do you come down on that? So I, I got a few thoughts. Firstly, what were the chances of him being off his tits on vodka at the time <laughs> of the crisis? Well, it was quite early in the morning, so I'd say hi. Hi, okay. Um, <laughs> when he said about 50, when he said about he was about 50 50 he didn't quite know what to do he, was, he didn't know where he was potentially um the the 50 50 thing that came quite a bit later didn't it um yes. i just i just 
I just wonder if he's maybe talking up a, a bit of a grand story as he gets into his older age, <laughs> uh, possibly. Well, this um, can happen. So whether whether or not he he talked it up or not, I think we can we can allow him a certain amount of that because he was literally being told that America had launched missiles against the USSR. So for him to even question that is huge. He's not meant to question it. He's meant to do his job. Did, did they work out what it was? Is it literally just a system blips or did someone sneeze on the screen? or did, uh... They reckon it was a combination between some sunlight bouncing off something at a funny angle and hitting the, the satellite. Um, it, it was that that kind of, I did read I did read it on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> but there was there was a couple of potential explanations for why the system did throw up the wrong things. But interestingly, for it to have got to the highest level of this is a real alert, it had, had to go through about 20 odd system checks on the way. So he had to look at that and say, I don't believe the 20 odd levels of checks that this computer has done. I don't buy it. All right. Was he on duty in Chernobyl a couple of years later? Oh, boo. <laughs> he, was, he was also linesman for the, uh, for the World Cup game in 1966 <laughs> and gave that ball over the line, I think. He was also seen in the Crystal Palace area with a shiny trophy in a carrier bag as well. <laughs> <laughs> Your stamp collector then. I'm not entirely convinced by this one. I mean, I'm grateful <laughs> he was there and he saved us. And there was an element of doing his job about it. But the fact that they needed somebody to watch the system suggested that there were doubts with the system. If they had a 100% fail-safe system, presumably it would just communicate straight away with those higher up. So the fact that they had to have someone to watch it and then interpret the system is a slight slight bugbear for me. He wasn't supposed to interpret it. He was just supposed to take the the information. This is this is pre-internet days, you know, this is not everything is hooked up. His job was to watch that screen and then to phone someone physically. I know this is this is all way before your time, Holmes. You know, with the days before the internet. See, always barter oh, up the oh, judges. That's not true. But I'll take the flattery. I'll take the flattery. Because <laughs> you're so young and handsome. Yeah. Obviously, you know this. <laughs> no further questions, Your Honour. Should we award the trophy now? <laughs> <laughs> told, told, told you she was going to win. <laughs> It, it seems that he was part of part of some sort of checks and balance. That's that's why I'm struggling. Check, and I get the argument about time, but surely communication, even then, would have been vitally important. So to go through various stages suggests that there was a need for checks and balances in the system. Uh, this is very much what I reckon, rather than what I know. By the way, same here. It's all, it's all yeah. To be fair, to be half cut and go. There's only five missiles. It might not be too bad, and not pick up the phone. That 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 takes some, you know, cojones to use a word that might get the, us the through honesty. our age our age rele relevant evening tonight. Right, it's after nine o'clock. Chris knows what he's letting himself in for. Yeah, we're passing the watershed. Kit, Kit, give us the science bit. Yeah, I, I probably should give a, a little bit of science context in that um, this kind of stuff does happen scarily often. Is the truth. 
Um, there are things like uh, sunspots that uh, that cause problems with the Minuteman. Um, there's uh, there was a case where the U.S. accidentally bombed itself with nuclear weapons. Um, fortunately, they didn't go off. Um, there was a case during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we mentioned. These systems do have people looking after them as fail-safes who aren't just supposed to take in the information and go, okay, something's happening, let's pass that up the chain. That would be pointless. These people are there as filters, as human um, brains, basically, to make sure that we don't have a war game situation where Matthew Broderick has somehow sent the world into into total annihilation because of a game of tic-tac-toe. Um, I realise that's not what happens in the movie. Please don't write in. Um, but uh, certainly there are there are backdrop um, there are backups. There is a, a big argument that Petrov could be argued as either derelicting his duty or not doing his job. Um, if people do interpret it that way, the truth is that he probably is there to provide that human intelligence. Personally, I th- don't think he's an unlikely hero because he was literally the guy there at the time whose job it was to interpret nuclear weapons. You know, if Pickles the dog walked in and decided not to have the the nuclear launch then I think you'd have an argument, but... Um... <laughs> I should have done a dog this week. Ugh. But look how that worked out for Beth. She's still mad about say, it. The first time I got decided to do a dog story and it completely backfired, so... <laughs> so speaking, of, speaking of the Americans losing nuclear weapons, it gives me a chance to quote the only memorable moment of John Woo's Broken Arrow. When the guy says, sir, we've had a broken arrow. And he says, what's that? And he says, we've lost a nuclear weapon. And the guy goes, I don't know what's more worrying. We've lost a nuclear weapon or we do it so often we've got a code word for it. (laughs) Which is is really confusing. That film followed by uh, We Were Soldiers where Broken Arrow is the uh, overrun position and they call it a napalm on their own. I did watch them once in the same week and it was just like, I know Hollywood is pretty poo, but this is just confusing. Yeah, I believe Rogue Spear is actually the code for a, a lost nuclear weapon. If you're interested, Rogue that's a better that's a better code word. Yeah, I think I, th- I believe it's a Rogue Spear, but I might be wrong. But not 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 Rogue Spear, the French chap. Bring on the terror! <laughs> I, I I I just find it ironic that. This incident happened in what 1983, and the movie War Games came out the same year. <laughs> he was watching a bootleg copy of War Games. Why is that ironic? <laughs> the wrong button. I don't. Know, I don't know the exact dates, but I just find it ironic. It's both 1983 because yeah, that joke was he watching a bootleg copy? <laughs> Why is it ironic? Probably just more of a coincidence, yeah? Well, coincidence, yeah. thank you. What was <laughs> well, that, I using ironic? Andropov, Andropov it's, 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 it's like a free ride when you've already paid. Ah, uh, that's it. <laughs> Unless he was distracted by the... By Who his computer, thought it figures? Saying, Do you want to play a nice game of chess? Whatever it was in war games. <laughs> of course, the, Lockie's just made a good point. Was, and, and Andropov was a loony. So we've all worked for bosses who are a bit mental that you know you just don't pick the phone up because it's probably going to be better to get the bollocking than die in a nuclear explosion. What do you mean, Alina? (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 I have to say I work for two fantastic women who run this incredible podcast. It's a privilege and an honor to to be here. Um, And I should forever be grateful. You've got to tell when you lie. I want to play poker against you. Yeah, I, I move my lips. 
Matt, right, this is why you edit should... that bit out before you you say what you said then. <laughs> well, to to be honest, are they actually going to listen to it? Probably not. <laughs> much much like me, I only ever listen to these ones that I'm. Alina doesn't listen. listen when she's on the podcast. I say. <laughs> <laughs> She, she says, um, I'm not going to join him. I did think, well, that wouldn't be any different, even if you were logged in. Um, <laughs> hello, Alina. Hope, hope, yeah. hope you're feeling okay. We miss you. Um, yeah. I'm actually, as we're doing right, I'm going to get lucky to do his because I think his is a great choice. And as he's a judge, he can't win. Well, you can get because I'm going to put him completely on the spot. I'm, 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 pan- I'm vamping now, trying to fill this out to get it over two hours. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I am, I am historical filler. Um, yeah, no, well, it, it, not a prepared pitch at all. But I had a chap who uh, was born into poverty uh, of Irish heritage, which is never a good start, of course. Um, the... Norman, <laughs> where is he? Ashton's. Um, he was an army brat, really, so moved around. I mean, this is the late 19th century we're talking about. Moved around a bit, but no place was really home. Um, went out to Turkey and worked as an engineer and was there in 1914 uh, when war broke out. And as a British national, he was interned. Um, uh, I think this is right. Uh, he was in Turkey. Had he joined the army by that time? Possibly. Anyway, he was, he's in a jail somewhere in um, Turkey. Uh, he, he'd already had a, a pretty tough childhood, including a disease which had sent him blind at one point, and he'd recovered the use of both his eyes, one of them slightly on the wonk, though, and, and none of this bodes particularly well. Um, he got himself ill while he's in some prison set up in in turkey in 1914 1915 kind of time and so they actually send him back to britain um thinking this guy is going to be absolutely no threat in the war effort whatsoever anyway um he, he duly does join the army when he gets back um he floats around between different units i think he, he's in the royal army medical corps briefly um and then uh, decides actually no flying is going to be for him i think i think maybe um hitting things with spanners uh, possibly was more going to be his bag because he was a moderately talented uh, mechanic um this is uh, edward mcmanock um i'm talking about now um as it turns out he could fly a plane he managed to get get himself into one he managed to um get through uh, the officer's training course as well pretty comfortably because although he'd had a tough life and, and was born into poverty um he was no mug um he was very eloquent um had been politically minded um prior to the war as well um by the time he got himself a plane and over to the western front he was a new pilot in april 1917 and this is bloody April when the Royal Flying Corps has its worst month of the entire war by a street. This is basically joining the 20 minuters. And if there is a time you do not want to be a new pilot in the First World War, this is it. But he duly survives um, bloody April and um, it turns into, well, you know, some people who joined the Flying Corps because they thought it was a good idea. Some people because they thought it was you know, an opportunity for them and some people are natural flyers and this is and this is manic. But he had that other skill which was really, really useful. Maybe to do with having one eye slightly wonky. He was a good shot uh, as well. And he ended up being Britain's highest scoring ace uh, of the war too. So uh, that's my very ad hoc 
uh, pitch for Mick Manock. Um, he's not of, of high birth. He's very definitely not a knight of the air, anything like that. He had a troubled childhood and a tough start to the war uh, and turned out to be one of uh, the British Empire's great heroes of the conflict. Strange bloke, though. Yeah, well, I, 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 mildly psychopathic. <laughs> um, yeah, but a lot of them were, I think. A lot of the, these guys who do sort of great things in war, there's some disconnect with reality. Um, and he, there's no kind of hint of chivalry uh, in his in his behaviour. That, that's a kind of an element that we talk about in First World War aviation. But no, sod that, not with him. <laughs> I, I think... I'm, I'm just for a laugh. I'm going to get Holmes to judge you. What do you reckon? I think that's a good call, given his, his background, you know, physically and class background, and what he what he went on, what he wants, what he went on to achieve. I think also, I think there's a. We didn't publicise our air races, and that was a deliberate decision from memory, wasn't it? Was that because we didn't want them, didn't want them becoming targets, or we just didn't like them to be the recipients of publicity? I can't remember that from the depths of my mind, but. In, in the same way that the Red Baron, all his exploits were hoovered up by the German media, we didn't have anything like that. It became difficult to send them back into action, the German ones, didn't it? People like Udet and, um, oh, blimey, I don't, you know. Didn't we have a Yeah, him too. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it's a shame that the pilots aren't as well known. I mean, I'm probably as bad as everyone else, but when you're trudging around the Somme and things like that, you tend not to think of the pilots because you're looking at, you know, all the people on the front line sort of thing. Um, Biggles? Sorry? Biggles? Everyone knows Biggles. (laughs) Yeah, but I I only think of Biggles when I'm at home on Friday evenings, not when I'm on the Somme sort of thing. There's a difference. But (laughs) I think think the contribution to pilot, the pilots made is, generally overlooked you know unless you're at the Arras memorial type thing then you'll do your bit on pilots etc it's easy to, it's easily to sort of forget about them and that you know i mean it, we should probably know more about him than we do about Sassoon, but we don't and culturally we don't remember him at all really which is you know and when we think about pilots we tend to think about just it was observation and then they started shooting etc etc but they were you know part of the all arms battle body and by 1917 they were strafing soldiers etc etc shall I, shall I shut up now obviously i i would let you win because of my background <laughs> oh, you you may have noticed i'm trying to desperately stretch this out so we can put marcus on as late as we possibly can so i'm actually going to pick one up from twitter <laughs> Some of us need to eat. <laughs> yeah, you should have had beforehand like the rest of us. Um, so Ryan McNutt made a... I said George James is just ordering McDonald's. <laughs> no, it's deliver- just things weren't cooked in time. The, you're, you're, you've gone very strange down in that image, like in Eclipse. Anyways. Um, yeah, it's light. So R- Ryan McNutt made a very good shout, actually, for Ulysses S. Grant. Because... There's a man who won a war and became a president, but had, well, to be fair, he failed at being a president as well, you could say, but he he was literally terrible at every single thing he did, including being a soldier until that one moment when he actually figured it all out and basically became bloody amazing. Um, and figured it, most importantly, figuring out how to fight Lee to in a way that would beat him. So I thought that, Grant was a good chat. So if we ever do this again, Ryan, you, you can come on and um, you can do it better than I did. Um, we can't 
put this off any longer, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Beth's knees are out. Lockie poured himself a very large shot of gin I saw a minute ago. So without further ado, Princess, the stage is yours. Yeah, it's not like I've got to get up in the morning and collect ammunition from Dover, which is a really weird one. I'm not sure if that's to do with Brexit or anything. Um, so, yeah, going back to, um, obviously, God's Own County today is getting a lot of uh, lot of glamour, really. We're getting a lot of focus. So I'm going back to Dorset as well. And we're going to mute you because we've had enough Dorset tonight. So <laughs> That was worth waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to unmute himself now because I can't remember how to do it from here. Right. So, sorry. Do that. I may edit that bit out because that joke only really works once, but I might leave it in because it's funny. Jackie Weaver, you need to read the. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're going to Dorset and uh, even a publication title, Dorset in the title. Um, got a chap, working class, regular lad, basically. Uh, obviously, I'm going to go into Napoleonics, but. Uh, I don't think Wellington was like, unexpected in any way. Lower aristocracy. I want to do somebody who uh, is is far more normal. So got a guy who actually fictionally some of us have met. And unlike James, what I'm not going to do is just read out a scene from Band of Brothers and just ignore some of the details. Uh, I'm actually going to like do some of the real details into this. So, wow, there's a first time for everything, isn't it? I know. I've got. I've actually closed Wikipedia as well. Uh, I've got source books. Um, so I've gone for uh, Benjamin Harris, uh, portrayed on screen by our good friend in History Hack, Jason Sulky, uh, who some of the cool kids in this podcast have met and boozed with in the between the tier systems. Uh, the reason I've chosen Benjamin but Harris... Doesn't, doesn't Jason have a book out soon? I think Jason's got a book out, but it's not one of these two. No. Um, yes, so the reason I'm choosing uh, Benjamin Harris is because he's a normal soldier. It is far too easy in the Napoleonic period to just cover generals and large battles. And this is largely due to the high rates of illiteracy within the uh, soldiers and the, sol and the working class that we have. Uh, Benjamin Harris himself was illiterate. And so that makes it all the more surprising and unexpected that we have his memoirs. It wasn't until much later after the uh, Peninsula War that his diaries were kind of collated together by a former soldier in the rifles. He has a, a really interesting life himself, uh, being the son of a shepherd with a bit of cobbling experience. Uh, he kind of gets press-ganged into the army. He kind of gets tricked into it, which means that he's not really much of a volunteer, doesn't really want to be there. And one of his first duties is actually being involved in uh, a firing squad against a deserter, which deeply affects him. Uh, he does then volunteer for a transfer into the, uh, into the experimental corps of riflemen, uh, the 95th Rifles, which is kind of where he uh, gains some fame. Uh, he goes into the Peninsula War. He's into the opening skirmishes on the coast uh, near the landings in Mondigo Bay. And uh, there he's kind of blooded. Uh, he fights at Relisa and Vimero and, uh, and fights in the line there, having men either side of him shot and killed. Uh, he, he gives quite... Uh, interesting descriptive uh, scenes of the battles uh, including where many the side of him were ready to run and uh, they together kind of stopped it, uh, and prevented that he also does has some quite interesting like personal aspects that i find uh, the, particularly what's not shown very much in studies and zach will probably back me up on this is very little was given to the camp followers and the women and one of his friends is uh, killed 
and his friends was one of the few who was able to take their wives out with them. And therefore the wives rely upon the income of their husbands along with just you know, pennies, happenies for washing shirts and laundry. Uh, therefore, if he, she is widowed, uh, she loses not only her income, but her protection as a legal status as one of the married wives on strength in the regiment. So he says he makes a really difficult decision that after finding uh, the body to confirm that his friend is killed, uh, he waits literally hours and then proposes to her, not out of love or affection, but purely to uh, keep her safe and uh, on the legal strength of the regiment. Uh, he then involves in the uh, fateful treat to Rukuna, and uh, during that time he's actually left for dead, and it's only after a couple of hours he's managed to pick himself up, basically crawl to a nearest establishment of uh, a very small village and receive some shelter and food and gets back. He has a really difficult life. He goes on the Holland campaign and gets malaria fever. Uh, he never really recovers from that. He goes um, to hospital and he gets relapsed of that. He ends up for a very long time in Hilsey Barracks in Portsmouth, which I know. Uh, and then he visits his family back home in North Dorset. And on the trip there, he's hospitalized again in Dorchester Hospital, which I like for the personal aspect of that's where I was, I was born. So it's a little personal connection that I really enjoy. Uh, but he remains illiterate. We don't know a lot more of what happens to him until one of his officers comes by him and uh, writes his memoirs down for him. We know that he carried on living in London, opened up a cobbler shop and probably made a bit for himself. He is recorded as running his own cobbler shop, uh, which is like a little running theme with uh, Harris is that he barely gets any sleep uh, because every time he's out on cam campaign and even exercise, uh, when they come to the evenings, when everyone else is going to try to get a little few hours sleep in between these long peninsula arches, the officers throw their shoes at him and he spends his evening kind of repairing shoes, which is, makes him a kind of a, a low level hero, certainly in my books. Uh, but he does live quite a long time, receives his Peninsula War Medal with two clasps and um, dies in, uh, in London and now buried uh, near Bethnal Green. Uh, the reason that he's not a hero for me is not only is he uh, a soldier uh, in the lines and does his duty, uh, he didn't particularly want to be there. He volunteers for the rifles because it seems a bit exciting after already being in the army and that's not something you can just get out of in the time. Uh, but he's a history hack hero uh, because he inspired Bernard Cornwell Sharp which is our obviously most loved TV series. Uh, but because of that, we've got Jason Solkey, who's writing a book, who's out in July, uh, from Crimea with Love, everyone drink. And um, that is now like one of our most listened to history hacks, which is basically giving, uh, making Bertie's, Bertie gets some dreamies uh, from Patreon. So therefore he's feeding uh, Alex's cat. So therefore he's a little history hack hero as well. So Rifleman Harris, Benjamin Harris, nice little books. One of the very few books I've got two of, and I don't know why, two different editions. Um, yeah, he's my, he's my hero. Well done. I think that was, that was an excellent way to, to end. Plug Jason's book. Um, <laughs> and, and now have um, Holmes and Lockie tell you you're wrong. Yeah. I've never won, so I'm not expecting to. <laughs> Um, they, they both don't look particularly impressed. Um, Holmes, off you go. Well, I think it's more, I can see why you'd be enthused by him. And I, I struggled to find out what, with the rest has been a heroic act of some sort, where it took place in minutes, hours, days, or slightly longer. But here, I think you've just nominated him because he managed to write, he was an ordinary soldier who wrote a book. I mean, he joined the army, he married someone, which I like that, mm -hmm. I like that as a touch. He was hospitalised a few times, once in Dorchester, exclamation mark, opened up a cobbler's shop, men's offices, shoes, dies. I mean, it's not going to have Spielberg lining up to 
tell his story, really. Uh, yeah. Only Ben Cormac. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, I think even Bernard Cornwell jazzed it up a bit, though, didn't he? I yeah. mean, uh, for, for a guy who was illiterate, to be, uh, to, to be quoting Voltaire at, uh, at the drop of a hat is, um, is quite something. <laughs> Lo- loosely based. It's very Hollywoodized. Well, to be fair, he, he's so underwritten in the books, Jason had to come up with the whole character for him. So, let's <laughs> yeah, be fair. Lockie, are you of the same high opinion? I, th- I think he does lack a little bit of the X factor required to be, uh, you know, one of the one of the top ranked heroes. Although um, Bertie definitely appreciates his, um, you know, all the all the subsequent efforts made in in inspiration by uh, by by Benjamin Harris. Um, I think the, the closest he came to being a chosen man is actually being press ganged. It's like we choose you to join the army. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it's nice, nice to know a little bit of the, the truth about him, but I, I doubt I could I could say he's the greatest um, unexpected hero. Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just did join the army and did army things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Effectively, yeah. We just don't know many about the the normal soldier, so I just thought I'd go for someone a bit normal. That's all. Well, that is unlikely. Thank you for that. As Beth, a are you, person, yeah. Beth, are you okay? You look like you were dying there a second ago. I'm fine. I'm still alive. Just about. Good. Let's remember to chew the sweets a little bit more before you swallow. <laughs> right. I think that's everyone. I haven't... You know, Amelia has returned. Eyebrow number two is coming along strong. So I think while Lockie and Holmes... Holmes is who's run off after that last that last effort yeah and who wouldn't um let's let oh there he goes he's got fresh booze for the deliberation if you guys want to do your thing we will disqualify mcmanic because well you can't have a a judge winning because then i'd lose my my hosting hat but let's start off let's go to sophie who was your favorite one tonight sophie and you're not allowed to say your dad's because he didn't do a very good job. <laughs> so who, who was your favourite story? I really liked that story. Oh. Yeah. Oh. oh, thank you, Sophie. You've I- made a friend for life there, Sophie. Now, let, let's see if this works both ways. Beth, what was your favourite story? <laughs> Obviously, Sophie's. <laughs> there we go. Oh, look at that little face! I just wanted, like, oh, bless. You can, you can, you can come again, so because you, you look like yeah. you put some effort into that. You can teach your dad a thing or two, right? <laughs> <Thank> um, <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, Zach, it was, it was, it was your favorite tonight. Oh, it's a difficult one. Genuinely, I know I'm meant to sort of pull rank with Marcus, aren't I? And and go for his but i'm i'm sorry mate but uh, you, you never do in the past mate so well, well no exactly yeah. let's not change your shirt habits here please harris wasn't that spectacular was he even notwithstanding jason silky and i thought sophie made a good pitch um but i think the real hero of the night is probably matt bone for muting james uh, for breaking the rules so that's that's my winner i'm afraid <laughs> 
Thank you. That will be a joke that we save for another time. To be fair, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honoured. Thank you. You've thrown me there now. So let's go to let's go to Clive. Save me, Clive. I've I've gone all red. Look, Sophie had just about won me over, and then obviously Lockie's came out, and because I'm a brown noser and Lockie's a judge, I have to go with him. <laughs> we'll, we'll make Sophie a judge next time. Um, okay, uh, Marcus, what do you reckon? I've got I've got to agree with like the First Nation stuff from Chris, but it's difficult when from the same household Sophie's pitch was a bit better. So to remove them both and prevent any bloodshed in Medway tonight, I mean, there's already bloodshed somewhere in Medway. There, there normally is. It's you know after nine o'clock, it's going to be somewhere down the pub. No, I mean depressing shit. Uh, normally we don't pay any attention, do we? So tonight we did. Um, yeah, I mean Schindler saving at least a thousand Jewish lives, including children, that's putting himself at risk. That's pretty heroic, um, even though it's delivered by Zach and it was just terrible, obviously. But I didn't almost mute myself for crying at all. So yeah, it's very well delivered and uh, a really worthy nomination, almost as good as some random rifleman that no one cares about. Well, we kind of care about him. We just kind of care about the person who pretends to be him doing a better job. Um, Charlie. Yeah, um, it's it's hard to to think of anyone more heroic tonight than than Oscar Schindler. What he did was incredible, and you know, hats off to to Zach for making an excellent argument, and to Steven Spielberg for making a film that's so affecting that you know that people do know his name and remember him but i'd say that you know he he is the the unlikeliest hero in the human um sense but the the best animal tonight was definitely savior definitely savior he was a very brave dog or she oh without that pickles got slated yeah Uh, 10 times the dog pickles was it was it was hard. There were two two excellent dogs to choose from, but I think Sophie definitely won best dog. James, what about Boy. you? You're on mute yourself. I haven't done it this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, actually, although he doesn't qualify, I did really like Lucky's one because that is not a story I've heard before and that was actually really inspiring and fascinating however as much as I dislike it especially for the joke he made earlier I do have to go with Zach's choice because it is out of the selection here tonight uh, barring the lovely animal that was saviour Schindler was the unlikeliest hero out of the choices tonight so yes Zach I'm giving you a win. Don't be too shocked. Well, no, you're not giving me a win. That's that's for Lockie and, and Holmes, James. I'm giving you a win from me. Just say thank yeah. you, Zach. Yeah, that, that's, that's not thank you, James. <laughs> so I was thinking there's nothing I have to edit out of this tonight. And then we've got to this bit. And I thought, oh, I do actually have some work to do tomorrow instead of just emailing this to Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, this is... Thin ice for you. Who are you voting for? Well, ob- obviously, I, I can't vote for for my for my daughter because that would be um, favoritism and nepotism, which I'm trying to encourage. Um, before I get, I hit. think you should. Um, I think you should. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> well, yeah, she'll make my life hell. So. 
to get rid of all nepotism within the industry, I believe, Chris. Nepotism works. Go for it. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, she, she's clearly awesome, but um, yeah, okay. I mean, uh, if I couldn't, if obviously I'm going to choose Sophie, but if I didn't have to choose Sophie, I must admit I, I missed a few because I was chasing the boys around trying to get them to go to bed. But um, I did really enjoy Zach's as well. Um, which would be a very, very close second to my daughter who can physically <laughs> hurt me if I don't vote for her. <laughs> and, and with good reason, too. Only reason. Right. Um, <laughs> Clive, do, have, have we done you yet? You've done me, but I was forgotten very quickly. Okay. I'm um, like that. Never, never. Let, let's distract Kit from him stabbing a head for a minute. <laughs> who is your favourite? Oh, sorry, man. I was uh, tuned out while the domestic was happening. I wasn't paying any attention. No, um, didn't miss anything. He shall call you Alina. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just the little, the little, the little weird family thing you had going on. Um, look, I, I don't think this is a classic episode. I'll be honest. Um, I think that <laughs> if I really had to sort of pick one, I'd probably pick probably Zach's because it's the only one that I would even class as close to heroic. <laughs> Wait. I'm really honest. <laughs> we all just got dissed by Kit so hard. <laughs> and then the rando girl and her dog, because she's a kid and I have to say that. <laughs> it doesn't even hide the fact he's cheap. I, I, I honestly thought everybody here was going to vote for Sophie because I thought there would be a monicum of hearts in this group. But then I remembered you're just a bunch of bastards. So Hang on. You, uh, you actually think any of these people have any heart? Do you not remember last week? Do you not I was, remember? This is a group of cynics, Matt. Why do you uh, trust anymore? Why? <laughs> I... I, I I am one of those strange people that, despite all evidence to the contrary, I have a monicum of hope for for you guys. Because, despite everything that happens on a regular occasion, I do actually like you lot. Maybe not Marcus, but you know, you lot—they're pretty cool. Oh. Um, let's yeah, let's 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 wind this up because I've Beth's made me drink a lot tonight with all the glasses touching. So I keep looking at Amelia getting stabbed in the head, and it's it's not a good thing. So. Judges, do we have a decision? We do. We've got it's a unanimous verdict as well. No real toing and froing. We've both been on the same wavelength at the start. So super. Go for it. The top three in reverse order is third place, Clive. Very good pitch. He's leading for quite a while. Um, very relevant. Second place this week is Sophie. Hey. Um, brilliantly delivered. And much better story than Pickles. After said, Pickles was just sniffing around in a bush. Saviour obviously had a plan and enacted it, and you told it brilliantly. And well, then Lockett's, Lockett's going to announce the, the winner. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why uh, Holmes said that Clive was uh, leading for quite a while because he was leading till the next person spoke. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. Um, yeah, well, we, we, we started strong early. Uh, with second place uh, actually going first and, and then third place going second and first place went third. Uh, Zach is our winner. Um, it is, as uh, Charlie said, very tough to look past Oscar Schindler in a in a heroism situation like this. So, yes, well done, Zach. Thanks very much. That's that's the least enthusiastic first place award I've, I've listened to on the show <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> After Kit tells us we're all shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the judges backed me up. 
Well, that's so that just means that it's peer reviewed now, doesn't it? Your opinion. <laughs> we get to congratulate him again. Well done, well done, Kit. This is not a democracy, Kit Chapman. Do you want to see something really creepy? Almost. Look how the eyebrow looks now. Oh. oh. That's clearly a, a man doing an eyebrow there, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what are eyebrows like in the program? Crazy. Oh, she's got like thick, massive slugs, um, but not that crazy. I need to trim her. I need to trim her eyebrows. Got my little scissors. <laughs> They're very good at snipping hairs. <laughs> we won't ask any questions about where they've been. And and right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the second edit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that, oh God. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sleep now. I better keep drinking. Um, Lockie's got the right idea. He's just pulled another bottle out of a box. <laughs> um, thank you. I'd love to say that was fun, but it, you know, Zach just sort of bummed everybody out bringing up the Holocaust on the night we thought we were going to get a Holocaust free evening. Um, so Alina's going to be that. so pissed. The Holocaust finally won and she didn't get to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is precisely the reason why I picked the it. The Holocaust story wins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The highlight of her week is talking about the Holocaust. We're going to get in so much don't, trouble. Don't, you're not recording this, are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, this, that bit's totally staying in. Um, right, Alina's not going to listen to it. Don't worry. Really hope she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll all know very quickly if she does. And... If you are a very angry Polish biker knocking the door, I never because she's in Poland. Elena, skip the first couple of two, two and a half hours, then you'll hear the good stuff. (laughs) It's always the ramblings at the end, isn't it? Right. Well, thank thank you guys for 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 coming out tonight and putting up with me. I think this was this was an adequate standard. Um, Yeah, I hope people enjoyed it more than Kit did. Kit Kit's clearly giving this two, maybe three stars. I, I think it's a strong three and a half. If I'm honest, um, I think I let the side down a bit from being conned into drinking whenever Beth did her glasses. Matt, if it helps, we all think you let the side down too. That's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I don't I'm think pleased that my myself myself appraisal is being backed up by my peers. So that's always good. Well, there we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again. We are back with all things Irish for St. Patrick's Day next time. A lot of effort is going into that one. You'll be pleased to know based upon tonight's lack of it. Um, so please join us again down the pub for all things Irish. We may even have an Irishman decide to show up for that one, unlike tonight when he bailed out on us but there we go so we have some fantastic podcasts coming up shortly especially with the brilliant robin mitchell talking about her book venus noir um but please listen out for for all of them even marcus and zach who might have another podcast out soon and one of these days they'll do it without the boss ladies holding their hand so from all of us here good night good luck and we apologize very profusely thank you In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. 
The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 